everybody, and welcome to Totally Tintin. I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick. And today we're going to be talking about Tintin and Alf Art. Yes. Uh, which is now, when we started this... Uh, that was I, my 24th yes, everybody. It was it? Yeah. Nice. All right. So let me punch your card. <laughs> and you get a free sandwich. I get a free yes. <laughs> That's next right. Time I... uh, when we started this, uh, and you told me what this book was, uh, I thought, how are we going to do this one? Because normally what we do is we go through mm. uh, the comic itself, yeah. and uh, you know, but this one there's there's really there's a couple of random pages, yeah. But there's it's all uh, it's all some dialogue, and then it's it's unfinished, mm-hmm. right? So uh, I don't know how we're going to do this one today, but let me explain the premise of the show, and we'll deal with how we do this when we do this. We'll arm wrestle it. <laughs> I don't know if that'll help, but anyway. Well, that's how we'll decide. Oh, okay. Sure yeah. enough. Uh, I'm uh, Ian Boothby. I work uh, – the, my main source of income what, – what are you, Revenue Canada? <laughs> anyway, uh, I work as a comic book uh, you writer. You started it. I know. You'd think by the end of this thing I would have gotten this right, but I really don't. Anyway, I write for <laughs> The Simpsons and Futurama comics, and I've been a comic fan for most of my life. But I've never read the Tintin books until now, and I'm very happy that I have. Uh, so I'm going through all of these for the very first time. You're going through these for the how many – <laughs> I have no idea. Some of them I've read many, many times. I there's right. not as much, but uh, I am less of a comics fan than you. I would say I'm more of a I'm more particular in what I like. So mm. this Erge would be an example of comics that you know kind of reached out to me as a as a teen, as a young teen when I first found them. After I read Asterix, when I first found Tintin, I was very excited. And uh, oh, you started thing. with Asterix, though. Oh yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. We haven't mentioned that in the show. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. When I went to um, junior high school, the library there had Asterix. And that was kind of a step past Archie and Richie Rich comics, which is what I enjoyed before that. And then uh, in grade eight, a year later, I discovered Tintin at the public library. And uh, that was a real... I think because I think I finished all the books that were available, like all the Asterix ones that were available at, at the school library. So when I, was a, yeah, when I was a kid, I would like books that were a series. Because mm-hmm. I would think like, uh, well, this was good enough that they made a bunch of them. So yeah. the first one can't be terrible. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would read, you know, a, a serial literature, the Great Brain series of books. Yeah, or, good, so, good, good yeah, series. Things, things like that or Asterix. But I never got around uh, to Tintin. And again, I'm very happy that I have. Uh, so how we start the show and then we'll we do normally, but well, I don't know what we're going to do this time, uh, is Dave gives some context as to where Hergé was in his life, where Tintin was as a character, and then after that we go through the book a page at a time, which we're going to do. Actually, I want to turn it on its head. I'd like to go through this book first, and then we'll go through the uh, context. Oh, is that right? Yeah. A little flippity do. Well, I think a lot of the people that are listening haven't, aren't as familiar with this story as they are with the other okay, stories. Okay, all right. Fair enough. Uh, then I'm trying to think like where to put discussions about things and things. Uh, yeah, all right. Let's uh, let's uh, do it. Like when I, when I first – let me just say this. Can I go over the cover first just really quickly? Sure. Uh, when I first saw this cover – because on the back of the books, uh, they have all the ish- issues, all the collections. And when I saw Tintin Alf Art, because I couldn't actually read – you know, and because yeah. it was too small. Yeah. So I, uh, what I assumed it was, was uh, it wasn't a story at all, and it was just some art. Mm. Like basically, people were inspired by Tintin, or here's the art of Tintin. I thought it was just like a, an art collection book that was a separate situation than uh, than the than the others. Yeah. So quite surprised to see that it was an unfinished story, and also there's nothing on the cover that says this is an unfinished story. So if you bought this as mm-hmm. a kid, going, I love Tintin. Here's the whole collection. Pick this up. Uh, I wonder if you'd be a bit wah wah wah. What's yeah, I going think on? you'd be a dis- bit disappointed by it. I have um, when I went to Paris the first time. 
Yes, I've gone more than once, which just seems weird. But anyway. Yeah, you had to go back because you left your wallet there. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. You're right. When I went there, I actually went there specifically to buy Tintin in the Congo, which sounds weird. Like, you know, obviously we went to the museums and things like that. But what I was most yeah, I was looking going, forward like, for to... For about the price of actually going to the Congo, mm-hmm. you bought Tintin in the Congo. But, uh, I mean, we went to other things while we were there, but... One thing I was particularly interested in finding when I was there was Tintin in the Congo. But when I was there, uh, I found it, this book, the original version of this book, which actually I have. Let me just open my magic bag here. Okay. Now, this is- uh, those of you that want to know what's happening, if you've ever seen Felix the Magical Cat and his bag of tricks, uh, Dave has a similar bag. And he That's just right. reached in, I reached pulled in. out an entire full ladder, and then this book afterwards. So when they, when they published this book in 86, uh, they published it in two parts. One had the script and some of the art in it. Okay. And then the other very side... Very rough art, yes. Very rough art. And the other side was just the the actual... Breakdowns. Breakdown of the... Because he never panel, wrote... Panel, panel, breakdown. Because he actually never wrote a script. This script is extracted from these pages. Mm-hmm. So he didn't write down a script and then start to thumbnail it. He just thumbnailed the script out as he went. And so he would... If he didn't like it, he would stop and redo it. Right. So, for instance, the original story actually started in an art gallery... But he didn't like that beginning, so he redrew the beginning of the story, starting in Marlin Spike. And that's how he worked. He didn't work from a script. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, when you read the script, you're just, you're just reading what's been extracted already from, from the pages, from the thumbnails that he'd already done. I know a lot of artists, uh, comic book artists nowadays, uh, even writers like myself, uh, we don't write by hand either. Like, mm-hmm. I have to write a script when I'm passing something off to an artist, yeah. but I initially always do it in sketchbook form and actually draw it out myself very roughly. And so reading this, uh, the way it, it, was, it was, it was very interesting, going like, oh yeah, that's how I do it too. That's Nothing has really changed in all these years. Well, I, I learned that from Robert Crumb. There's a story where it, uh, that he did where it stops halfway down the page, mm-hmm. and in the final panel says, this is what happens when you don't plan out your story, folks. <laughs> Yep. And when I saw that, I, of course, you laugh at that, but you could think, well, that's true, actually. So I, I've, ever since then, I've always done uh, thumbnails when I, for the few times I've written a story, I always do thumbnails. And then I'll cut them up and then insert or change now, pages. Now, what are thumbnails for those people that don't know what thumbnails well, are? Thumbnails would be like your, a very rough you know, a panel by panel planning out of the story right. so that you have like a sense of where people are standing and, you know, where the action and things like that. So that you have a sense of the flow of the pages as you go. Um, so when Hergé drew, and you can see in, in the pages of Alphart, at the beginning of it, you can see his pages that aren't so rough, where he's starting to work out the actual uh, outline of the pages. And those would be, um, those pages that he would work out would then be retraced, uh, you know, onto better paper. And he would just kind of give a better outline of the of the forms and stuff like that, and then they would be they would be kind of laid on top of each other, and then the assistants would add in the backgrounds, kind right. of based on what he had drawn. Now, uh, you know, other people drew the cars and the mechanical mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. So, what Tintin? What Tintin? Hi, I made the same mistake you did. All right. By the way, if we confuse Hergé and Tintin, uh, you must take a drink of either whiskey or mineral water. Um, so please have either, we didn't tell you to have those nearby, but please, if you listen to the podcast again, do so. Uh, so would he just like rough out like a car or just like a circle go car? Or just oh no, like, he, he drew it. Like if you look at the pages of, uh, of Alfart, yeah. where there isn't a car, uh, in the scene where Tintin is going to be run over. Right. Uh, he draws out fairly detailed. 
the cars in that section. I mean, that's him drawing the cars. So they're not bad drawings, actually. They're pretty no, no, detailed. No, they're fine. But then because the, he the wanted other, to, yeah, the assistant would would draw a specific type of car. Then in, yeah, in the place of a, that car, a better, yeah, a, a better drawing. I mean, he could do well, it better, perfectly but to fine. Model, yes, to because they seem to be very yeah. specific about them. Well, in past episodes, you've gone over all well, the different Roger, models of cars. Sure, and Roger Leloup was gone by this point, so there probably wasn't someone there who was like that much of an expert at drawing okay. specific cars. But I think they did like to draw a particular to give it that sense of reality to have actual cars. You know, so it would have been would have been interesting to read this story because you're getting cars from the 80s mm-hmm. or not from the 80s, Seven. sorry, the late 70s. Yes. Um, uh, which would be kind of interesting to see the, you know, the change of cars over time. Uh, One more quick question about the cover, okay. if I could. Uh, what do you think the cover is of? Tintin, I, I don't, I don't. I think he's looking at so the forgeries. Now, here's what it looks like to me, and uh, you know, it looks like, and this is what kind of chokes me up. It looks like he's waving goodbye. Oh, really? Yeah. Whenever I looked at this, it looks like he's looking out a window, basically looking, <laughs> looking at us and waving goodbye. And so I always thought that was kind of an appropriate cover. I understand that it's like alpha. Like, it's an art thing, so yeah, it probably is a canvas, but that always looked like, he was almost like in a plane or something, mm-hmm. looking out a window, yeah. and giving us a little wave before he takes yeah. off. Yeah. Well, we talk, would you prefer that I do the context first? No, is this... no, it's okay. We can, we can do it this way. Let's, uh, let's take a risk. Because we're doing, yeah, this is the last show of the book, so let's, right. let's mix it up a bit. Now, um, I do want to take one thing from our last episode and, uh, and, and, and kind of button it before we get to this. <laughs> and pat yourself on the back? <laughs> no, it's not a pat myself on the back because I actually have a theory about it, and I wanted to run this by you. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the, in the last episode, I was saying how, because the captain gets these pills, uh, basically everyone gets uh, these pills uh, that make you unable to drink alcohol without being in great pain. Yeah. Uh, Snowy uh, ends up like eating food that has the pills in them, but the captain is the first one. Uh, to, actually, the only one who doesn't is Calculus. Calculus can still drink alcohol, but I'm sure he doesn't. Uh, and I was saying it, it felt to me like this was something they would continue in future episodes. Mm-hmm. And so cutting out the drinking because it's probably not appropriate for kids anymore. And you went, oh, feedy five, fiddly <laughs> And you did a little merry dance and, uh, and mocked me. And waved your finger, uh, and it turns out I'm right. Uh, looks like <gasps> yes. Okay, but wh- you have patted yourself in the back very effectively. Well, I had to. I had like the theory that you could not have this kind of drinking in a kid's story anymore when we were getting to the 70s and the mm-hmm. 80s, and we're getting yeah. into that kind of situation. But I also had a second theory that I was thinking about, which was Tintin is a child's fantasy, and the child in this fantasy can do things that a child would not be able to do in real life. Now, Captain Haddock is the ultimate. Uh, great dad. He's the dad that will, you know, reluctantly go on an adventure with you, but he'll go on an adventure with you. Mm-hmm. He's the father type figure in this. Now, the only problem with, with, with him is occasionally he gets drinky and he gets angry. And I'm sure there's a bunch of kids out there that are like, yeah, I can relate to that. And a kid's fantasy would be, I wish I could have a magic pill and I give it to my dad and dad can't ever drink again. That would be a fantastic fantasy for a kid like that. Mm-hmm. And in this, in the last story, that happens and now dad can't drink anymore. And now he's just dad all the time. You know, he's still grumpy. He's still dad. Yeah. But he yeah. can't, but he won't be in danger. He won't do anything stupid. He won't, you know, do the, do the bad things that, and you still love dad even when he was a drunk. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it would be nice if that wasn't the case. Well, I, I, I rejected your theory at the time because I couldn't believe that Hergé would ruin his character, that effect, that, that completely. How does that ruin a character? Because that's the sort of the essence of the captain is his love of his, bravado, his, that love of alcohol, that part of his character is sort of in, 
intrinsic part of of as you know created by Hergé from the beginning. Mm-hmm. We've always seen the captain in that way, and part of that for me is I've never read the stories chronologically before. I've only I've only read them in, as a mix them up over time. And, you know, as I, as I got the books and stuff given to me or, or got them at the library or bought them for myself, right. I've never actually sat down and read them chronologically. So, you know, Picaro's may have fallen somewhere in the middle of my reading cycle. So it's never occurred to me when I read it that that was like the end of drinking for the captain. Right. You know, because I read on in the stories and he was still drinking, if you know what I mean. So I never understood. treated that as like the final now one. Now that you have read them in order, does mm-hmm. it make sense that he gets rid of the drinking or do you still feel it ruins the character? Uh, I feel that uh, I feel that he ruined all the characters as in the last few stories. I feel How like did he, he ruined Tintin. Well, Tintin is no longer the active, you know, boy reporter adventure character that he started with. He becomes a passive character that action active action happens to. So in seven fourteen, he's kidnapped, and he does do some action on the on the island. But in the end, it's not him, not his efforts that save them. Right. Well, of course, I mean, he does, he does push the action forward in Tintin in Tibet. Like he forces everybody to do what he wants. Yeah, I'm not talking about that one. I said the last two. So that's... The last two. Okay. Yeah. So Picaro's, uh, once again, he is unwilling to leave Marlon Spike to go to save Castafort. For no real reason. Yeah, it's a mess. I mean, he knows it's a trap and that's a good reason to not go, but... You know, a couple of pages later, he just shows up out of the blue and, and puts himself in the trap. Right. So that it does, seems, that really does feel like there's missing pages in that that were that justified it, why he. It feels yeah. very odd, and I just feel like Hergé had kind of had kind of uh, we just he was just tired of the character, was just right. having fun, sort of messing around with with the concept more than you know. So he was just playing with our expectations and mixing things up, and the captain likes to drink, and everyone likes that about the captain. So let's take that away. Okay. And yeah, you know, don't think about it as a you know because our our very puritanical version view of alcohol. Oh, we got a different version is, on this. You say your bit, and I'll say my bit. You go with yours. Our puritanical okay. view of alcohol yours. in North America okay, yeah. is very different yeah. than Europe. Understood. You know, Europe has a completely completely different yeah. idea of alcohol and and how what what's appropriate and what's appropriate for kids to drink and what age it is for appropriate for kids to right. drink. That's very different there than it is here. Like here, it's you know you can't even bring kids to a movie theater that serves alcohol here. You know, it's so draconian our our concern about you know and so these all kind of stem back to the to the days of of uh teetotaling the teetotalers movement and mm-hmm. and all you know sort of the can't think of her name right now i'm trying to madly think of valley of the or beyond, beyond the valley the of the dolls because the name oh. of the band is the carry nations <laughs> uh carry nation you know all that kind of stuff yeah. uh you know that's part of well it's part of american history but it also has been part of of Canadian history too, because we have a big the Presbyterian Church, which is very dour and very uh, sort of anti-fun, is a big part of our of our cu- cultural heritage as well. And so here in North America, yes, all the, those things, you know, he made changes to the captain's drinking, you know, based you know particularly on the publisher's desire to to not have any drinking visible in the in the pages. So, for instance, in the crowd with the golden claws, he actually removed images of the captain drinking from a bottle and just replace them with, you know, the bottles emptying and the captain's getting pro- progressively right. drunker, but you don't actually see him drinking. Uh, when we grew up as well, there wasn't a, you know, there was a lot of fun had about drinking that, you know, Dean Martin, you know, mm-hmm. notorious, notoriously drunk, although he wasn't, he just pretended, but, you know, that was a big part of his character. Uh, drunk comedians like Foster Brooks were, or Red Skelton, you know, they had these very developed right. uh, drunk acts, you know, whether it's coming home late at night and you, waking your wife up and, bubble, you know, all those kind of things like that. That was very hilarious that people were drunk. 
we don't really have that now in our culture because our culture has, you know, kind of come around to a sort of new Puritanism in a way. <laughs> I disagree with all of your, what you're saying. Okay. Continue. <laughs> but, uh, well, it's, it's true, though. I mean, we have a different view again of, of, you know, it's not... It's not from Puritanism. It's just like a realization of what it is, you know, and it's like, no, it's, it's self-destructive bad behavior that not well, bad as an ethical or moral behavior it's just like but people it, are still people are still drinking it just yeah, doesn't stop people right. from drinking i mean people are drinking more or worse than they were mm-hmm. before it's just our culture We've doesn't changed, want to acknowledge it if you you know. said, no, but, okay if you're going with it's the culture well that's not true because stoner humor is everywhere you know mm, you i mean you so that's all it's just become is, is it shifted from uh alcohol to stoner humor if it was a puritanical situation yeah. we wouldn't have any of it all we've done is we've modernized it. And so because, I don't know, because what, what how, you need, the mo- what, because here's the problem. Yeah, okay. uh, when you're uh, doing the drinking, yeah. we know now that a drinker isn't the Dean Martin, I'm the good guy who really <laughs> likes you and I'm a friendly fella. <laughs> yeah. We know that occasionally, and now I'm going to punch someone hard. Yeah. Whereas a stoner yeah. will not punch you. So we get the same comedic value out of a stoner that you used to get out of a drunk. Yeah. But realistically, we know now the drunk's going to get mad at at some point and going to start, you know, okay. he can't get in his you car. Don't, but the thing is, I guess uh, we, know we know that. Because he's going to hit someone with the car and that's no longer funny to us. Okay. You know, so so all we've done, we've taken the same jokes sure. and we've taken them to, so to what, this. So what we do is we just ignore the reality, though. So Which is? We're no long, we can no longer ignore the reality of drunkenness. Now we kind of we kind of smooth over the reality of, of stoners. So, mm-hmm. you know, because there are obviously health risks with that as Absolutely. well. We yeah, just kind yeah. of, we're kind of glossing it over for the sake we're always going to want to do those jokes. Yeah. We're always going to want to do those jokes. And I guess the that's stoner, the safe way. The stoner jokes aren't even the same stoner jokes that Cheech and Chong used to do. If mm-hmm. you look like at a Kevin Smith movie, those jokes are the drunk jokes of the Dean Martin era. They're not the Cheech and Chong jokes of the 70s. You know, so that's where I got a problem with the puritanical because I look at like, you know, all the stuff that we can see now in TV and go like, you're saying this is the puritanical? I just watched a Game of Thrones. I can't well, we believe that re- we're in a puritanical but, era. But we replace. But we replace things. Right. So we what do we replace do is, things. Yes. You know, other things become taboo. Now and that we, leads yeah. me into what I think about the captain <laughs> sure, situation, okay. because uh, the you know Herge, the reason that the captain drinks is so he can get into hysterical situations. Yeah. The reason that calculus doesn't have his ear horn is so he can mishear things and he'll get into situations. So here's the motivations for everyone. Snowy, I hear something i'm a dog i'm going to do a dog-like thing i'm going to run into this and that's going to cause trouble yeah. calculus i'm going to mishear something i'm going to go wander into something that's going to cause trouble the captain is going to drink and now he's going to go and cause some trouble now it feels like by, by the time we're, we're we're here we don't need that gimmick anymore because yeah. because every time the captain drinks he lights the boat on fire and they almost <laughs> die right yeah so there's really it's hard to justify that like the captain becomes a huge jerk if he like really character wise it's not just we don't like drinking because it's bad. No, we don't like drinking because every time he drinks, everyone almost dies. So this guy's well, got to stop that element, drinking. That element kind of disappeared after after. When has he drank and it's been a positive experience? Well, I mean, most Ever. of the drinking he does now. I mean, the later stories like Castafiore Emerald and stuff like that is just mere social drinking. It's no longer, you know. Well, you know what I mean. He right? was in a safe house. That literally, he's in his own safe house. He yeah, couldn't. But be, other and no one gets the no Red Sea hurt. Sharks and stuff like that. I mean, what, what happened in Red Sea Sharks when he drank? Nothing. He's just 
Isn't that the one where he doesn't wait? No, that was the You're one where they call him a coward. They call him a coward, and that's what motivates. That him kind back. of becomes the new. The that's new right. Thing. Yeah. So now that yeah. we have that, is like the blood. That that's what gets mm-hmm. him to do the thing. You don't need the booze anymore. So it's like I mean, all these things. It's you can yeah. think of it as like a giant societal thing. But I, as a writer, I feel like I think of them as a device, and it's like what gets. What gets the gears moving? What gets the captain to the dangerous place? What gets him to the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah. And it's and it used to be drinking, and now it's, well, if you're a chicken, I guess we're not going. No one calls me a chicken. I'm a going. And we're all going. Let's go. So, you know, there was the, no need for it anymore. The, the funny thing, well, the sad part of it is that it wasn't his, it wasn't Erge's choice to, to mm. do that. It was, his hand was forced by the animated... Uh, movies because they didn't want the captain drinking anymore so they could sell him in the states yeah so in a way the captain's comment in picaros that you know these take away your freedom of choice yeah. is Hergé's own comment i do agree in the story his, uh, that the, that calculus the character should not have had the right to do that because otherwise you know well we're all going to correct each other's flaws now the uh, funny thing is is if you look in the back of, of this sorry. book uh you see Hergé's plans to uh have the captain cured of his of his uh inability to drink so calculus is going to create some sort of cure for him, mm-hmm. uh, which involves the captain losing all his hair and getting purple blotches on his face. But it does cure him of his sure. inability to drink alcohol. There we I go. Don't, I don't know if that's as good a payoff as you'd want. Sure. If you want a parallel in modern times to this, uh, all of the Marvel characters uh, can no longer smoke. That was a big thing in Marvel Comics was the, the, like, uh, the oh, thing smoke okay. and uh, Nick Fury could smoke and all these. Yeah. And then they went to a thing where only the villains could smoke and then they just like cut out smoking completely. Mm-hmm. And it was an editorial mandate because, you know, for whatever reasons. But yeah, now... Well, the n- comics are for children. Uh, less... They're not, obviously, but still viewed that way. So It was more... Uh, well, so, I Just the same way in the 50s. Like, comics were very popular with soldiers. Right. And yet they were treated as if they were comics were only sold to children. True. So. And in DC Comics, everyone smokes still. Everyone just smokes, and they're all smoking, and everyone's a big smoker. So DC is owned by Philip Morris. Sh- wow. There, we just broke that story. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's start going all through right, the let's, book. Let's, now that you've patted yourself in the back. <laughs> and I did send you a... Folks, I did send you a I, message. Did I? I did send a message that said, you were right. Don't you dare mention this on the show, you said. You were right. No, I sent you... That's true, I did say that too. Don't you mention All right. So, uh, the, we've gone over the cover. Uh, there's a title image there of the captain holding up the letter H. <laughs> yes and it looks like a little uh little bird is above it or a bug or something like that flying next to it not sure what that is and then we get to the story itself now how do we go about reading this uh let's start off with uh, should we just do it as a play now can we do that as a play like is that legal that we can read this as a play sure it's for review purposes sounds fine let's do it all right Everybody, this is for review purposes. This is for review purposes only. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll change a word every so often just so it's not uh, copyright infringement. Okay. Uh, we'll do it generally. We don't have to do everything. Okay. Uh, so anyway, we're starting off on a summer morning, fine summer morning. Uh, everything's at peace uh, surrounding the house. Outside the windows of the bedroom, uh, Captain Haddock is, is fast asleep, and a green woodpecker is hammering away at a tree trunk. Uh, but uh, the captain is not awake. He uh, thinks he hears uh, knocking at his door and said, you can be uh, Haddock then. Oh, you want me to start right away? Sure, why not? I'll just say... What were you going to do instead of starting right away? Oh, I just... Because you said we wouldn't read everything, but then now we start... No, go ahead. Whatever you want to do. Okay, I'll just start. He says, uh, yes, come in. And uh, your breakfast, Captain. Let me sleep, Nestor. Out of the question. You must take your medicine. And uh, we see the captain opens his eyes and doesn't see Nestor, but it's uh, Cast Bayankath, Castafiori, has come into the room. And instead of breakfast, she's got whiskey uh, labeled with a skull and crossbones. Oh. 
And he says, but that's Locke Lamont, Senora. You know very well I can't stand it anymore. And then she changes into a bird, part chicken, part woodpecker. Oh, so you don't want it. In that case, you can't have any pudding. And she turns into a bird and pecks at him. And she turns into a woodpecker. Help, help, save me. Yeah, and uh, the Tintin by this point has uh, been awoken and he rushes to the captain's room. Uh, but the captain's still in his nightmare. Uh, he's trying to defend himself from the imaginary attacker. No, no, no. Captain. Uh, Somehow I feel those parts don't really need to be read, but it's okay. What parts? Me saying no, no, no three times. Oh, very good. Uh, <laughs> you're an editor at heart. Uh, captain. And captain's thrashing about. Uh, half stuns Tintin trying to wake him. Uh, then he sits up. He snapped too. Oh, good heavens. But Tintin, what are you doing here? What a nightmare. What a horrible nightmare. Telephone rings. Tintin answers it. Hello. hello. Uh, and we do a cuts the butcher gag. Yes. Uh, back to uh, Haddock. As I was telling you, a horrible nightmare. There was Nestor bringing my breakfast. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't Nestor, and it wasn't my breakfast either. Telephone rings again, (laughs) interrupting the captain. Hello? Hello? What? Uh, Oh, Signora Castafiore? No, it can't be true. Oh, the nightmare is true. Uh, Yes, I've just arrived from Los Angeles. I'm in your country for two days. Planning to come and embrace you, uh, my brave Captain Hassock. She always gets the name wrong. Uh, How is my dear man? Oh, very well, Senora. Uh, he's just gone. He's uh, just gone out covering up. Uh, then she says that uh, you know uh, she's sorry to have missed you, uh, and saying tomorrow. Then oh no, tomorrow's impossible. She has a date with uh, Endadine. Endadine. Oh, yeah. oh, she can't believe you don't know who Endadine is. Explains. Uh, it's fascinating. He's a uh, he's just completely uh, amazing, darling. Uh, he's the most marvelous mystic. He lays your hand on your head. You're magnetized for a year. That's the way it goes. you got to meet him. He's inspired. But she's going to leave uh, Tintin now, she says. Uh, she's going to go window shopping. A lot of, uh, Lots of kisses to her dear Captain Paddock. Ciao. <laughs> and then the next scene is Tintin kissing the captain because uh, Tintin will carry a message on. Yes, no, he does not do that. True to the letter. And then Nestor walks in. That's why it's called elf art. That's right. Uh, and so Nestor walks in. Uh, the captain, he went out, sir. He seemed in a great hurry. He was, what am I missing here? Uh, oh, yeah, Tintin's uh, talking to Nestor, but the captain bolted while this was all going on. Uh, Nestor's telling uh, Tintin, you know, the captain, he went out, he seemed in a great hurry, didn't even drink his coffee, and said he wouldn't be back until this evening. <laughs> and so now we're going to go to a busy street in the center of town where the captain is strolling, smoking his pipe. Yes, before, this is the book before Calculus gave him the pill to stop him from smoking his pipe. <laughs> Yes, there's nothing I wouldn't do to escape her. Ha <laughs> ha, lost in the crowd here in town. I'm out of danger. Yeah, but whoops. Castafiori comes sailing around the corner uh, with a miniature poodle in her arms and Igor Wagner, her accompanist, at her heels. <gasps> Catastrophe, cataclysm, calamity, good heavens, what can I do, what can I do? He looks around, he dives into a, the nearest doorway, which is the four-cart gallery. Now, I'm not, uh, again, I don't like giving notes, but if I, I would have thrown in her name in there. If you're doing cas- Catastrophe, Cataclysm, Calamity, Castafiori, I would have yeah, thrown in yeah, the extra one there. That's good. Anyway, jumps in, uh, and then... Uh, he an thinks ass- he's saved, he says, few saved. Yeah, but an assistant uh, in, the, in, the, in the gallery comes up to him uh, with a, I'm going to make him a bit of a snooty. Snoot. Can I help you, sir? There we go. Can I help you, sir? Very good. I like the I like the line reading you gave me there. Continue. <laughs> good morning. I, I was just passing. Just thought I'd look around. All right. So he does look around, and he sees uh, in the window a poster displaying the name of R- Ramo Nash. Yes. Suddenly, Cassifiori enters the... 
also comes past the gallery. So she sees the poster. She goes, oh, an exhibition of Ramo Nash. Mm -hmm. Yes, Ramo. I'm wild about him. Perhaps he's there. Let's go in. Oh, very good. We're both doing casting. <laughs> yes. All right. She, she, no, that's okay. It's a character Sorry. that's so big it, depend, it, it demands two different characters. Uh, so Sorry. she goes into the gallery. She's flanked by, you know, her accompanist, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Wagner. Uh, and, and no Irma. No Irma yet, her maid. Uh, Panic-stricken, the captain rushes into an adjoining room. Uh, two men are sitting at a table. The first is quite short, has long hair, a scarf, and a thick pullover. The second seems to be more of a businessman. I'll be both of those people. I'll be a little man and big man. Okay. Uh, uh, excuse me, I I'm disturbing you. I thought, I, I want to tell you how fascinating I find your exhibition. You are interested in Alf art, sir. Uh, passionately. I, I'm absolutely wild about it. Nothing I like better, that's for sure. I am Ramo Nash, sir. Thank you, and I congratulate you. And this is Mr. Forkart, the director of the gallery. How do you do, Mr. Mr. Haddock. Archibald Haddock. Haddock, not by any chance Tintin's greatest friend. <gasps> yes, that, that's me. Hmm, what a stroke of luck. I thought someone finally recognized them from the moon mission. <laughs> that's right. Well, as it so happens, I you never change your clothing. It's very easy to recognize you. <laughs> as it so happens, I have something interesting to tell him. Uh, could I meet him one day? As he is a journalist. There, we're in the final story, folks. And as we have mentioned every episode, is like, is he still a journalist? By gosh, he has never been more of a journalist than he is in this story. story yeah. He just, it's like... Once again, he's having trouble with his taxes, and he went, I've got to tell people I'm a journalist, or I can't write any of these adventures off. So, But, but of course, I'll, I'll give you the telephone number of Marlin Spike. It's Marlin Spike 621. Oh, good. Thank you very much. I'll leave you to go around the exhibition with Rebo Nash. I will telephone Tintin in a day or two. This way, sir. He'll immediately dial 612. Absolutely. And then uh, the artist marches the captain towards the gallery. Oh, at the foot of the staircase, the two come face to face with Castafiore. Oh. Dearest Bianca, Rambo, darling, what a surprise. My goodness me, my dear friend, allow me to present an art lover. You're, Captain Stonecock, you here, what a pleasure. <laughs> uh, Bianca, you here, what a surprise. There we go, so now we're into this. Uh, you know, he is, uh, he's met his match, he's tried to escape he's her, and oh, you, never, you never get away. And now here's a lot of dialogue from her. Here we go. <laughs> here we go. How delightful to find you here. You're interested in Alphard. Well, I'd never have thought it possible that a simple fisherman, that's condescending, <laughs> without any education, really, really condescending, should be mad about art. It's fantastic. It proves your art, pointing towards Ramo, so simple and at the same time so rich, so noble, so basic, can reach the whole world from the most uncouth, seriously, <laughs> to the most, the most, well, to people like us. I don't like her anymore. <laughs> ah, Alphard, a genuine Return to the sources, to the caves of Castamura, uh, of uh, Las Crocs, uh, well, in a nutshell. Lascaux. Lascaux. Oh, don't tell me what it is, you simple peasant. It is in the heart of our time. In it, we return to the origins of our civilization, don't we? The wheel, the fire, the hard-boiled egg, and goodness knows what else. It is inspired, my dear Rambo. Inspired? Look at that, Captain Cap... Capoc. What strength, what nobility. You feel better when you've seen that, haven't you? Er, um. Really, I have to do all that and you get away with an er, um? This isn't fair. Anyway, she's, Keep on going. she's taking the captain up to another uh, creation. It's a picture displaying in capitals the letter A and Z, or Z if you're American. This work here, look, a microcosm of the whole universe from Alpha to Romeo. Flat L Lancia to make. No, that's another make. Err. <laughs> oh, look at this one, especially I'm for you, Captain. K for Capoc. 
my name is Haddock, Signora Bianca. Oh, goodness, what am I thinking of? Well, there's just the picture waiting for you. A for Haddock. Uh, Haddock is spelled with an H, Signora. In that case, oh, in that case, <laughs> I have precisely what you need. This H in perspex. Not just elf art, but persona for elf art. Inspired, sublime, marvelous, transcendent, blah, 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 blah. Blank is right. Such a chance may never come your way again, sir. All right. Then that evening at uh, Marlin Spike. Uh, good afternoon, sir. I hope you had a good day. I'm Nestor, just in case you've forgotten what my voice sounds like. You could say so, Nestor. Is that you, Captain? I'm Tintin. Here, come quickly. And he rushes into the drawing room. Uh, in front of the television, uh, watching uh, Ben Kalish uh, Azab being interviewed by Thomas de Harmont. Uh, now, we remember uh, uh, Ben Kalish uh, Azab from what books? Uh, well, Red Sea Sharks and the... Cra- oh, was it the... No, no. Crab with the Golden Claws is in that one? I don't think so. Which... Uh, Red Sea Sharks and Land, Land of Black, Black Gold. Gold. Yeah. yeah, okay. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Why don't you be the emir? Okay, I'm going to kind of do it in, in a... Yes, I came to Europe to do a little shopping. I'm offered to buy Windsor Castle from the British, because of course he went to Harrow. He's he's Arab, rich Arab. Uh, that's where they all went, right? Everyone sure. knows that. It's a well-known. If you read Private Eye, that's what you think anyway. When you're a kid, if you read that magazine. Yes, I came to Europe to do a little shopping. I've offered to buy Windsor Castle from the British government so I can put it outside Waterstow, but the British government refused, despite their great financial difficulties. One wonders why. The same brush off in France when I proposed to buy Versailles and the Eiffel Tower, which I. I'd have converted to a Derrick. Everywhere I was met with comp- incomprehension. I was just about to offer a considerable sum for the refinery they built recently in Paris and then used as a museum. All right, now this is the uh, the interviewer. Uh, you mean the Boberg Center, Excellency? I know, I know. That's the official story they gave me, but I can tell you, it's my line and I know what I'm talking about. It's a refinery turned into a museum, and that's that. Hmm. Now I've decided to build my own museum, looking like a refinery on the outside, just to keep up with the fashion, but... Ba-boom! Just, big explosion! Just a break for a second here. Please do. I, uh, the explosion is a good place to break. <laughs> the Boberg Center. Is that the Pompidou Center? Did it change his name? Because oh, it does good. look like a like a big kind of factory if you're outside that of it. sounds like a pretty good joke if it is. Yeah. Ah, let's see. Explosion! Uh, Tintin believes there's a terrorist attack. Uh, you know, this is on the, on the screen. Everyone is le- left up in pa- panic. Oh, but it's not! If you can see Abdullah, who you know is your classic, your classic brat. He's the son of the emir. He is a practical joker, loves explosions, and uh, we see him uh, beside his father. Abdullah, my darling sugar candy duckling, aren't you ashamed of frightening the gentleman? Oh, don't scold him, Excellency. Think nothing of it. Just a little banger. Let's proceed with the interview. That's interesting because, like, the gag normally is the people around are like, I'll get you! And the Amir is like, don't. No, he's perfect. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's weird someone else is, in yeah. this case, going, no, 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 don't scold him. I guess they wanted the interview. Yeah, I, su- I suppose More so. than the spanking. Sure thing. Well, as I was saying, I'm going to build the Museum of Art at Waterstar. I want to make Kemed in, into a modern country resolutely moving into the future. The plans are already drawn up. All right, let me just get into some exposition then here. Thank you, Your Excellency, and we stay with the World of Art to report that Jacques Monastère, uh, the well-known expert, has disappeared in dramatic circumstances. Bum, bum, bum. An experienced yachtsman, he left a small port in Sardinia three weeks ago. His yacht, Emerald, has been found empty, drifting off the Corsican coast at Ajico. 
Agitio. Sanguinaries Islands. A length of rope was attached to the boat. Jacques Monastir was known worldwide, and most of the great museums called upon his expertise. It seems probable that Mr. Monastir decided to go for a swim, and for safety attached himself to the boat by a line. Then disaster must have struck. Talking of experts, I met a Mr. Forcourt who told me he had something interesting to say to you. He'll ring you up sometime. Ah, yes. Are you interested? I'm Tintin. Ah, yes. Are you interested in uh, getting interested in art, Captain? Uh, yeah. I mean, I've got something to, sh to show you. He shows a large H in Perspex brought bought that moment. There. Whatever's that? Um, it's uh, elf art. Even personal elf art. H for Haddock. Do you get it? I, uh, yeah, I guess. And you, and you know it's signed by Ramo Nash, the famous Jamaican artist. You've heard of him, haven't you? Uh, the name certainly rings a bell with me, seeing as I'm a journalist. <laughs> uh, but... Hello, my friends. Cuthbert, how are you? A little chilly for the time of year, but st hello, what's that? Right, we know we mentioned the calculus uh, Cuthbert has just entered. Uh, right, it's back to you. Oh, that, that's a work by Ramo Nash. I can see perfectly well that it's an H, for goodness sake, but what is it for? Uh, nothing, nothing at all. It's a work of art, and, and a work of art isn't for anything. Art is art. A cart? You're making fun of me, Captain. I've had quite enough of that sort of joke, but... <laughs> then put your ear H horn for... in. <laughs> H for cart? Really, what do you take me for? But, Cuthbert, I... I you... Uh, Tintin picks up the object, looks at it more closely, and he thinks it's very original. Isn't it? And uh, you know, when I when I saw that, I was suddenly struck. Ding dong! Uh, the door rings. Enter Thompson and Thompson, the certified detectives. <laughs> All right, we'll be each a Thompson. Okay. You can be Thompson with uh, without a P. I'll be Thompson with a P. And if we are the Thompsons, we speak together. Okay. Here we are. Good, Good evening, evening, everyone. Good evening, gentlemen. Am I without a P? Sorry. Goodness gracious! Without a P, as in. <laughs> Lamp. Goodness gracious. Where did that come from? It looks like an H. What is it for? It is an H. It isn't for anything. It's all for it. That's all, and it isn't for anything. Oh, good. good. Oh, oh, well. well. Oh, oh, good, good, good. good. Well, well, well. well. <laughs> you, you dropped a good and you added a well. Fair enough. <laughs> I dropped a good and, down a well. And what fair wind blows you uh, here, gentlemen? Well, it's like this. Yes, it's like oh, this. I turned into Cuthbert. Sorry, everybody. It's going to get confusing here. I only have three voices I can do. <laughs> uh, perhaps you know that Amir Ben Kalish Azab is on a visit to this country. Yes, we just saw him on television. Well, we have received certain information which makes us fear a terrorist attack upon him. Really? Yeah. Yes, it's feared that he may be kidnapped by a Palestinian commando. Really? So we thought that perhaps, since you know him well, you might put him up here, incognito, him and his son. He offers a, a Havana cigar to the captain, to his colleague, and helps himself. A cigar, captain. Thanks. My dear friends, I should be happy to accommodate an entire tribe of Carpathian bashy bazooks, or even a herd of fully grown buffalo, but have young Abdullah here? Never again! Never again! But he's the nicest boy in the world! These cigars we're smoking, he gave them to us himself. Anyone see the joke coming? <laughs> that, that was kind, wasn't it? You think so? Well, if I were you, I'd watch out. Because that little brat... Bang, bang, double bang. The Thompson cigars have exploded one after the other. <laughs> what did I tell you? <laughs> I know that little fiend. Bang. Abdullah, just wait till I catch you. Good stuff. All right. Now, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry to give you this voice as well, but you are okay. clearly the voice of Jolly and Wag in this show. All right. Let me just 
Give me a moment here. Sure. All right. Reaching deep into the character well. <laughs> we got three. Yeah. Got that bucket <laughs> keeps coming up full of sand, but come on. We can we can do it. We're gonna get through this, brother. It's our it's almost our end of our podcast. All right, all right, all right. Uh hello, hello. What have we got here then? A, a war? <laughs> oh exploding cigars. Someone played a joke on us. Ha <laughs> exploding cigars. They were a specialty of mine called Anton Anatole. Them in the dribbling glass. He my, sees the sculpture. Oh, my, my, what's that thing on me? It looks like an H, eh? Yes, it's an H. So what's the what's it for, then? It's a work of art. It is elf art. It is by Ramo Nash, and it is for absolutely nothing at all. Exit wag. Highly offended. Wow, that's Seems amazing. Strange. Yeah, that, he doesn't seem like a, the kind of guy that yeah. like takes uh, offense. This is the first draft. Also, why did he come in? <laughs> that's a good question. There was no justification for why he came in. I was in the neighborhood. <laughs> I thought he'd come by. Yeah. What we I should have done was for you. When I said first, we should have had like the audience like kind of roar up with applause because he's walked onto the right. set. Right. By the way, here's the other Woo! side of things. Here, let me again. I don't want to. I don't want to write uh, extra things. But here's what I do if I was Jolly and Wagon there. Is like, oh, you've got some art. Would you like that art insured? Uh-huh. As that is my only thing. That's right. I'm a boor who likes to insure things. <laughs> no, boor- you missed it. He missed something there. I'm a boor who likes to insure. Come on, man. Jump in those jokes. Oh, very good. <laughs> Did everyone else get that joke? <laughs> it rhymed. Folks, uh, we're almost to the end of this podcast series. <laughs> if you've made it this far, just keep hanging on. <laughs> so Wag uh... leaves for a reason we don't know why. Ring goes the phone. Hello? No, this is not Mr. Cuts the Butcher. I, I, what? Oh, I beg your pardon. Just a moment and I'll pass it over to him. It's uh, it's Mr. Forecard I was telling you about. All right, I'm Tintin now. H- Hello, yes. This is, t- yes, I'm Tintin. Of course I'm a journalist. I've always been one. What do you mean I don't report on anything? <laughs> Shut up. Tell me what you want. Uh, gladly, tomorrow, late afternoon. Certainly, around six o'clock? Fine. Till tomorrow then, Mr. Forecard. I replace the receiver and turn to the captain. I'm saying that as if I was actually Tintin. <laughs> uh, we're up to our necks in art. You meet uh, Ramo Nash. You buy some Alf art. An expert disappears off uh, a Jackio or whatever. Uh, another expert has something to tell me. Ben Kalish Azib wants to build an art museum? Uh, then Nestor uh, respectfully insinuates himself into the conversation. Him, I... Yes? Will you be needing me again, sir? Uh, no, Nestor, thank you. Oh, tell me, Nestor, what do you think of this? Honestly, now. What is it, sir? It's an H, Nestor, as you can see. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, what is it for? Nothing, Nestor. Nothing at all. It's a work of art, Nestor. That's obvious, isn't it? And it isn't for anything. Well, seeing as I'm the only one in this house can actually drink, I'm going to get my drink on. Goodbye, <laughs> Nestor. Away. Finishes the 30 cases of Loch Lamont sitting That's in the right. cellar. Yeah, the next evening... Uh, Tintin, who's uh, settled into the drawing room, very comfortable, uh, looks at his watch. Well, ten to six. Mr. Forkhart should be here soon. Uh, but time passes, and he does not arrive. Half past seven. Hmm. Our Mr. Forkhart surely won't come now. Funny, has he forgotten our meeting? Uh, cut to the next morning. Tintin and the captain are having breakfast, and I'm assuming it's a delicious breakfast with many things on the table. If any of their past breakfasts are any indication, okay. Nestor lays out a good spread. There's toast. There's eggs. Probably a bit of ham. Mm-hmm. Definitely coffee sure. out of that nice pot. Anyway. It opens with a very uncharacteristic uh, thing that Tintin says. What fresh disaster have they got for us today? He opens the paper, reads a few lines, and... No, Mr. F- yeah, that is a weird thing. Yeah, Tintin isn't cynical. He's usually not cynical, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, Mr. Fork... <laughs> Sorry. He was just... <laughs> He's not talking, he talking about Mar- Marmaduke. He's just very worried about the comic strip not being <laughs> yeah, funny again. Right. <laughs> anyway, it's about the right era for that. Yes. No, Mr. Forkhart is dead. 
Uh, then he went, oh, Luan. Haddock says, no. Why That's, does he say that? I don't know. And also Tintin goes, where's Snowy? Has he been around at all? Yeah. It's been no Snowy business at well, all. Well, because Snowy doesn't do very much news anymore and really he's drawn in the odd time yeah. so sitting with the cat. I would say like when there's an explosion on the TV, uh, then yeah, him and the, uh, Snowy and the cat should be jumping up in shock. Maybe they're sitting on the TV. If you look at the, the page, uh, Snowy is bringing the paper to them at the table. There we go. That's nice. All right. So anyway, the uh, article in the paper says, Forkart dies. Art world mourns again. Yesterday, uh, Jacques Monster disappeared off Ajacoco. <laughs> Freak, I hate that word. Near the San Juan Islands. Today, the renowned expert. I love this podcast. I am not going to miss stumble bumming over these words. Uh, Henry Forkart met his end in an accident. His car skidded on a bend plunged into a dry riverbed bed and burst into flames the doomed driver perished in the blaze sad huh. very sad yeah. uh, all very mysterious says tintin uh, he had something to tell me and he died too like his unhappy colleague alas yes poor man a chapter of accidents but what if they weren't accidents oh eh? you you always see mysteries everywhere yeah yeah have you read any of our books <laughs> every time it's real <laughs> Well, don't, we don't see the times that it yeah. isn't real. Do you know what? Don't hmm? scully me here, is what Tintin's saying. <laughs> I don't need this. It's all real. I don't understand your, been, pop refer- your pop culture to, reference. You know magic exists? Tintin, I don't <laughs> understand your, your reference to scully. Are you talking about me sculling a, a boat? Because I'm a, I'm just a, a fisherman who doesn't understand things with when my coarse brain. When was the last brain. time you ate a fish? <laughs> or got in a boat, for that matter. <laughs> all right. So anyway, you're probably right, Captain, but even so, uh, I shall make a few inquiries, seeing as I'm a journalist. <laughs> the next morning, uh, Tintin parks his motor scooter outside of the forecart gallery. Uh, you wait quietly uh, for me, Snowy, my friend. Oh, good, Snowy gets a little uh, talking to. That's nice, so Snowy waits. Uh, he's met by the assistant and uh, th- uh, with the large spectacles. That's you again. All right. Good morning, sir. Can I help you? I Well, it's like this. My, that's not what Tintin says. Uh, <laughs> my name is Tintin. just says, my name is Tintin. Yeah. My name is Tintin. I'm a journalist. Mm. Uh, Mr. Forkart telephoned me two days ago. He said he had something important to tell me. He said I would have all the essentials for a sensational article. We made... No, he didn't. Uh, but maybe he did. Uh, we made a date, and just before his visit, he had his accident. Alas, yes, sir. Uh, I was wondering whether perhaps you knew what he wanted to tell me. Alas, no, sir. I don't even know. He didn't even know he had a meeting with you. He said nothing about it. You see, it's just that I was struck by the disappearance, one after the other, of two very well-known art experts. And I even began to wonder if they were uh, accidents. What? You mean hidden behind the counter. A recorder is taping the conversation. Mm. Richard Nixon waits uh, off to the side. (laughs) Oh, sir, uh, who would have wanted to get rid of Mr. Forkart? He hadn't a single enemy. He was the nicest man in the world. Yes, uh, but what was he like as a driver? Careful, forgive me, uh, but he did sometimes have a... But did he sometimes have a glass or two? Never. He drank only water. I gave him those pills that make you not able to drink booze. <laughs> uh, as for driving, he was almost too careful. And his car? Could it have been uh, something wrong with it? Or, oh, I don't know. That's a question for the garage. Mr. Forkhardt had uh, been to see them in the last few days for some little job or another. Oh, the garage. Have you got the address? Well, then, gets the address. Uh, the garage. Thank you very much. Uh, miss, miss, I've been a lady this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> That's important information for me to know as a character. <laughs> Holy cow. There's women in this story? There's never women in Tintin unless they're a shrewish wife or Bianca Castafiore. You didn't look at the picture. I'm one of the most developed characters that's ever existed in this. Okay. So, <laughs> Miss, Miss, uh, oh, thanks a lot for this name. <laughs> Van de Zand. 
Martine Van Der Zand is my name, and I'm a lady. She, are you, she doesn't seem certain about that, actually. Nah, she seems a little I wasn't uncertain sure of her about, own name. I wasn't sure about who I was at all. <laughs> anyway, now off to uh, Legsnalt. It's 30 kilometers, so he, uh, he stops and then... Ligno. Oh, don't even start with me, brother. Uh, so he starts and he's, he's at the garage and uh, he sees a mechanic with a mustache. Uh, so this is going to be you. All right. So, uh, Mr. Uh, Fleurant. <laughs> That's me, yes. Good morning. I'm a journalist. Let me make it clear. I'm going to regret this decision. I'm a journalist. <laughs> okay. And I'm making some inquiries. Uh, about the or inquiries, either way is good mm-hmm, sure. about the accident in which Mr. Forkart was killed. Oh yes, w- what a tragedy! Particularly this forest. Why did I do this? But I've already told the police everything I know. Mr. Forkart was one of my oldest customers. He actually brought his car in just a few days ago to have a small oil leak attended to, just a seal replacement job. Let me just say to everyone who's a voice actor out there, mm-hmm. good job. You make it look easier than it is. <laughs> it is hard yeah. to do. <laughs> Our our repertoire is Looney Tunes <laughs> animated series from 1940s to the 1950s. That's it. I could get a little rabbit. Uh, and apart from that, the car was in good shape. Perfect. Tell me more. Tell me more about the car. Sorry. Perfect condition. <laughs> it just made me very, very angry. Rossin, frossin, stassin, gassin. It was almost new, less than 32,000 kilometers on the clock. No, to my way of thinking, Mr. Forecourt must have been taken ill. I'm also inspired by the Muppets, by the way. Yep. Not just not just Warner Brothers. Oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> Go, continue. Well, he knew the road. Uh, he had a house not far from here. Guys, we all apologize. <laughs> You have made it this far with us in the podcast. We've really let you down with this episode, but we're going to get through it. Anyway, uh, it's we? a tragedy. We're in. A, we're all very sad, and we're dealing with it the way we can. All right. So anyway, all right. So wait, where does the accident happen? Uh, the exact place I'll show you on the map. It's three kilometers from here, between Ligno and Mormont. You'll see the parapet is smashed, and the car is still in the bed of the river, the Douillette. Thank you very much, Mister Florette. Uh, Fleurot, but that's okay. Let's go. <laughs> Sorry, I stole your line. Why? Step near your line there. Let's go, Snowy. And so uh, off they go. All right, now we got the pursuit. <clears throat> so, uh, so wait, where's this pursuing? Oh, t- he Tintin remounts his scooter, drives away. A powerful black Mercedes follows him. So, mm. all right, this is one of the pursuers. A long street bit. Nothing about fragging, snagging rabbits. <laughs> Come on, put your foot down. Look at that. A Jeep pulling out. The idiot. And he's passed it on his scooter. Hell's teeth. And now there are... Hell's teeth is an interesting swear. Sure. And now there are cars coming the other way. He's getting ahead. After following the Jeep for some distance, the Mercedes finally manages to pass. That's it. Now go. There. There's him. Now step on it. Nothing in sight. Now's our chance. Uh, but the occupants of the Mercedes, Mercedes are out of luck. On the brow of the hill, two policemen are watching the traffic. And after this new uh, setback, the Mercedes at last closes up on Tintin. Now it's only a few meters behind. This time, get him! Uh, suddenly, a loud bang makes Tintin and Snowy look around. The Mercedes has blown a tire. Blast, blast! Just when I was going to hit him. What a farce! What a weird thing to say. <laughs> it is. <laughs> uh, while the occupants of the Mercedes change the wheel, uh, Tintin reaches the scene, scene of the accident. 
Ah, here we are with nothing happening. Uh, what a farce! Yeah, there's a. Bro- my girlfriend's in the back seat, and my wife's in the trunk. What? Here comes the vicar. <laughs> He's right. It is quite the farce. <laughs> Time to run for my wife. Uh, there's the broken uh, parapet. Here's the place. He stops, parks his scooter against the wall, uh, crosses the road, and approaches the ravine. Let's see, and looks over the ravine. Oh, quite a big drop. Uh, checks. There's no signs of skid marks. Uh, Snowy, meanwhile, starts to chase a rabbit. That's what Snowy does. He gets into trouble being a dog. That's yeah. good. But after a short distance, he stops and starts to bark furiously. Uh, hello, Snowy's found something. Skid marks. Hmm, looks as if a car cut out in front of another to make it stop. And there, a pool of oil. Let's see. The garage man talked about a small oil leak. But perhaps the car was standing for quite a long time. And someone forced Forecart to stop. Then it really was a murder, and the other accident to Monastir was murder as well. Good detective works. Uh, deep in thought, Tintin doesn't notice the Mercedes approaching at full speed. There he is! This time, don't miss! Then we'll have some Haas and Pfeffer. Uh, the Mercedes <laughs> starts to swerve to hit Tintin, but another car suddenly comes from another direction. Look out, a car! He must be crazy! Mister! Stop here and reverse back. Tintin watches this maneuver. That's dangerous. Reversing in a place like this. Look out! But it's too late. The Mercedes is rammed by a van coming from behind. Well, get going, get going! We've botched it! What a farce! Uh, the Mercedes disappears in a cloud of dust. So a the van, van driver, driver getting out says, Those people must be absolutely daft! He notices a submachine gun on the ground and stoops to pick it up. I say, look at this! Don't touch it! It's, uh, they'll probably be fingerprints. He carefully picks it, Tintin carefully uh, picks up the gun with a handkerchief. I'm taking this to the police, but first of all, I'm going after them. In the state they're in, they won't get far. Tintin drives away on his scooter. This time, there's no mistake. They tried to kill me, and that makes me slightly mad. <laughs> uh, but how did they know they'd find me here? Only the garage man. Yes, but Miss Martine, she knew I was going to see the garage man. Oh, oh there's their car. Uh, the Mercedes has pulled up outside of a garage, and Tintin hides behind uh, damaged 2CV. Careful, I must keep my eyes open. They'll uh, stop at nothing. And at that moment, there's a series of loud explosions. Tintin hurls himself to the ground. Oh, it's very exciting. Now we return to the gallery. Uh, it, it was only a nosy, nosy uh, motorcycle starting up. A uh, mechanic watches uh, Tintin with amazement. Uh, I really thought someone was shooting at us. We, and Snowy says, we looked pretty silly, you know. Oh, talking dog. <laughs> Uh, uh, Tintin to a group of mechanics who are arguing fiercely. fiercely. Internal combustion engine. engine. <laughs> All right. Excuse me, uh, but do you know uh, where the people from that Mercedes have gone? That's that's just what we'd like to know ourselves. They arrived here and stole a car belonging to that gentleman there while he was filling up. We're waiting for the police. Are you looking for them too? Well, I'll say so. They tried to kill me. Oh, and here come the police. Half an hour later. Uh, Tintin's getting on his scooter. All right, you keep a lookout behind us, Snowy. If you see anything unusual, bark. Well, now off to Marlin Spike. It won't be easy to explain all of this to the captain. Uh, the captain reacts uh, as Tintin had foreseen. Honestly, Tintin, what you're telling me can't be true. It, it's like a cheap thriller. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> With that, terrible voices. Did that get said in the last issue as well? That sounds familiar. Uh, Tintin is, said it. Yeah, it's just like a cheap thriller. That's yeah. a weird thing to repeat. Um, anyway, nevertheless, it's absolute fact. And one thing seems fairly obvious to me. Forkart's assistant tipped uh, off the gangsters. She was the only one who knew I was going to see Fleurot at the garage. Tomorrow I shall be paying a visit to that young lady. Why not now? I'll, I'll go with you, Tintin. You never know. Yeah, anytime you say there's a young lady, Haddock's right on it. Uh, <laughs> the next morning, uh, stopping the car outside of the Forkart gallery, uh, Haddock says... 
I'll wait for you in the car. Oh, thanks a lot for your help. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. All right, now I'm now I'm well, uh, I'm going to be a more feminine uh, assistant. He doesn't, than I was he doesn't have to buy an, another letter. You know what? I'm not changing the voice. It's she's got a very masculine voice. Yes, apparently. Ah, uh, oh, good morning, Mr. Tintin. To what do we owe the pleasure? Not so much pleasure, uh, Miss Martine. Oh. Yes, I am more and more convinced that Mr. Forkhart's death was not an accident. Mr. Tintin, you really believe... Yes, I do. And the proof is yesterday someone tried to kill me, too. What did you say? It can't be true. Alas, yes, only too true. Now, one single person knew I was going to see Florent at the garage. Oh, yes. And you know who that person is? Absolutely, Miss van der Zemmerzens. And that person is... Yes, you! Me? Yes, you! Who did I tell I was going to, Leganon? Uh, but I, I told no one, I swear to you. It's dreadful. How dare you suspect me? Me? She seems to be sincere, this girl, thinks the Tintin to himself. But then who? And turning into a pig. Who? Who? And the owl goes, who? Who? Unless... Tell me, it's it's obvious. Why didn't uh, we think of it before? Tell me, is there anyone else besides you here in the gallery? Oh, yes. The office belongs to uh, Mrs. Lejo, the bookkeeper. Is she here all the time? No, she only comes in once a fortnight. In that case, it can't be her. Huh, it goes in the next room. Mrs. Lejo? Yes, that's me. 25 years I've worked here like a slave. I've worn out my eyesight in the service of this company, and after that to be suspected of... of... I don't know what. Uh, Tintin goes back to reception. It certainly isn't her. She's a shrew. That's in fact, but she's honest. <laughs> For crying out loud. Okay. Yes. Wow, Tintin, harsh judgment. Harsh judgment. Yes, Tintin, I'm your typical woman in a Tintin story. Yeah, I'm sorry, I complained about working too hard. What a shrew. If only some man could tame her. To the assistant. who's com He's comforting the assistant. So I'm assuming the assistant is more attractive than the shrew in yeah, the other room. Yeah, I think so. All right, there, there, don't cry anymore. Shut up. Uh, I thought of something. <laughs> what if there are microphones hidden somewhere in the office? Bugs which record all conversations. But why? Whatever for? I, I don't know any more than you, but let's look all the same. In the car, the captain is beginning to be impatient. Young Sherlock Holmes is taking his time. And a half hour later... Oh, there he is. Well... <laughs> that was weird. <coughs> why... Okay, why not have a half hour later, and then Caddick says that? I don't see any justification for... You had it going, ah, I'm waiting so long, half hour later, well, oh, things are fine. Then. I think that you want to have a sense that how long he's been there so that we know that, stuff, that he's not just dipping in and out. So it's giving you a sense that yeah, time is passing. I get that, but we already get that, that there's a half hour, right? Mm -hmm. So like, you know, if, if you're grumpy about the wait, it's weird seeing someone going, I'm waiting too long, half hour later, then no re, you know. Oh, well, anyway, <laughs> it's just a weird flow to me. Okay. So uh, back to your uh, character, uh, Captain Haddock. I said other oh, as well. Oh, very good. Nothing. I don't understand it at all. Good. We'll go home. What a weird thing to say, too. <laughs> anyway, the car stops at a red light as the captain moves on. Tintin sees a huge poster. Stop, Captain, stop. What? What uh, is it? Tintin gets out of the car. He's looking at the poster. It looks like an odd-looking man with a beard and a mustache, a small round hat, large spectacles, wearing a curiously shaped pendant. His name stands out in large letters. Enda Dean Akas. Uh, together with the title of a conference, Health and Magnetism. That jewel reminded me of something, but what? Or who? Ah, Miss Martine. She was wearing one of them, uh, just like it. Uh, is she a disciple of this famous mystic, then? Why don't I go to the meeting? This must be the Endenheim Castafiori I was talking about. Oh, there you go. We'll reference back to that. Nice. If you want to, let's go. <laughs>
I like that everything. This is the captain now with everything. Hey, you want to go to this? Yeah, let's go. Then we get there. I'll wait I'm, in the car. I'm, I'm not going to go in. I'm grumpy because I'm waiting. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I added to that part of the story at all. Anyway, but I'm still here. Well, that's the problem. I don't drink anymore. I got nothing to do. Well, because half my character is gone. So anyway, that I know you're happy about it, but I'm not so happy. That evening, uh, decorating the speaker's table. You ever uh, read a Clockwork Orange? Okay. Uh, a haddock orange. That <laughs> evening, uh, decorating the speaker's table is the jewel motif noticed by Tintin earlier. And a presenter comes forward. So uh, do you want to be Endadine or the presenter? I'll be Endadine. Very good. I'll be the presenter. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my privilege to introduce the celebrated mystic Endadine Akas. May I ask you to rise? The audience rises, among them the Tintin and the captain. The master makes an entrance, attended by an acolyte. He speaks with a strong accent. Oh, I want to hear this. Oh my god, why? Very nice. Why? I'm going to sit back while this character what? just unfolds in front of me. What did I say? I wanted to be him. I just thought it would be easy. I just thought I'll just do it with my own voice. Sure. Shoot. With what? your thick Canadian accent. <laughs> Give him a thick Canadian accent. There, do that. <laughs> I don't even know. Uh, uh, well, I sense a hostile presence, eh? A skeptical spirit, which I which disturbs the atmosphere, the hoser. Back to you. <laughs> oh, sorry. What's the ectoplasm waiting for? He's gathering his thoughts. He's concentrating. He's meditating. Shut up, shut up, shut up. Everyone shut up. Uh, uh, my dear brothers, eh? My dear sisters, uh, I'm going to ask you to say together with me the sacred syllable after which your power. Don't turn around at once, but to your right and a little behind you. Taking a discreet glance, Tintin sees the Thompsons. What are those two jellyfish doing here? That's what I'm wondering. And and there, someone else I know. Look, it's Mr. Saccharin. Uh, from the, uh, in the Secret of the Unicorn. Mm-hmm. The session begins. The master is concentrating, but the captain has a violent fit of sneezing. Achoo! He sneezes several Achoo! times. Achoo! Blows his nose loudly. <laughs> drops his pipe. <laughs> hunts for it. The, uh, between the rows of the audience. Uh. In short, he completely disrupts the proceedings. <laughs> when order is fu- fully restored, the master utters the magic syllable. A... Um... And the audience replies, It's a little bit like the Marlin Spike Village Band, you know, pom 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 Shush! Oh, sorry. Anyway, having produced the last booming arm, the mystic imposes silence with a hand gesture. At that moment, the captain gives vent to yet another particularly sonorous sneeze. He blows his nose again uh, under the disapproving gaze of the audience. Aom, aom, aom. Now, now I'm filled with all the powers of the universe. I'm going to pass them to you and magnetize you one by one, eh? Draw near, my brothers. Draw near, my sisters. All the energy in the world is in me. I feel it. That voice. Some of his intonations remind me of of someone else, but who? I don't know. It's not like anybody really. The audience begins to move forward for the laying on of the hands. One by one, they kneel before the master. Go in peace, my son. None may stand against you. Oh, look, Miss Martine, poor Mr. Forcott's assistant. She's leaving. Come on, we'll follow her. I see you. They leave the hall. Once again, let's go this way. All right. Uh, there she is, uh, hurrying to catch up with her. Uh, good afternoon, Miss Martine. 
Oh, it's you. Oh, wait, is this me? Yeah, the assistant is now Miss Martini. Yes, yeah. Oh, it's you. And Mr. Kodak? Haddock, madam. Uh, how do you happen to... Oh, we were passing this way, and since I heard about Endidine, uh from a friend... Ah, yes, he's a wonderful man, you know. He magnetizes people. Yeah, yes, I saw. And he gave you the jewel? Yes. Uh, at least I bought it from him, and he magnetized it from me. It's a real talisman. I keep it with me always. Uh, may I? He says, feeling the weight of the jewel. Oh, it's superb. How heavy it is. Surely it must be gold. Yes, yes, I think it is. Oh, it's beautiful. And what does the design mean? Well, there are two E's back to back. Ah, Alf Art. No, no, E is the initial of Endadine. Yes, that's true. Hmm. May we take you home, Miss Martine? Well, thank you if it's on your way. Uh, they take her with them and leave her at the, her door. Well, goodbye and thank you. I think I'm beginning to understa- understand. Oh, yes? Understand what? By tomorrow evening, I shall probably have it all sewn up. Oh, yes. <laughs> Again, odd thing to say to another person. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next morning... Especially uh, to Tintin. Why, you've never solved a mystery before. I don't know why you're going to start now, Tintin. <laughs> no, yeah. I think what we're going to do is I'm going to get myself in a whole mess of trouble. We're all almost going to die, and then something will just fall out, and we'll go, Oh, that. We get it. Now we understand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and maybe we'll get our memories erased. Who knows? Oh, not again. Uh... <laughs> So the next morning, uh, Tintin, uh, good morning, Miss Martine. It's me again. I guess he's at her door or some such. Oh, but I'm always very glad to see you. No, you're not. You're usually crying when you see me. Uh, I want to tell you that uh, this evening, the criminal will be unmasked. I have a rendezvous with the informer at 8 o'clock at the old Fio factory near Marlinspike. You know the one they're knocking down? I shall be carrying a red lamp and, goodness gracious, be careful, that evening. Tintin is parking his uh, scooter near the entrance to the disused factory. Good. Now I must be on my guard. Uh, he enters the building when he hears a metallic sound behind him. It's me. Where are you? Light your red lamp as we agreed. You see a red lamp glow in the darkness. That'll do. Oh, sorry. You light yours too. Yes, there. All right, I'm here. Uh, the response is immediately uh, is an immediate burst of automatic gunfire. Uh, Tintin falls to the ground. Two shadowy figures disappear into the darkness. Quick, he's had it. Let's get out. Uh, Tintin picks himself up and waves uh, and waves his gun. Hands up. One of his attackers has crept round and knocks him cold with a massive blow to his head. He wakes up in the hospital. The captain is at his bedside. You gave us a rare old fright. It was Snowy who alerted us. Oh, my poor head. This is the 75th time. <laughs> but at least I know how the gangsters keep themselves informed about everything. A small, wow, my head, sense, uh, extremely sensitive electronic bug is hidden in the jewel. The, the jewel? What jewel? The jewel worn by Miss Martine. Oh, all right. So what? Oh, my head. It's just a tiny microphone transmitter. That way, all conversations are recorded, only... Only what? Microtransmitters like that have a very restricted range. My head really hurts. Oh, good whining. Uh, so, there was, so there must be some sort of relay nearby. Tomorrow I'll begin a search. Tomorrow? Out of the question! The doctor has ordered at least a week's rest. Oh, has he? <laughs> I think we know Tintin by this point. Yeah, he ignores doctor's orders. That's why he never got a polio shot. Tintin, don't you know about concussion protocols? <laughs> anyway, the next... Yeah, by the way, kids, if you're trying to imitate Tintin, don't ignore... Don't do what he does in the hospitals. Yeah. Yeah, don't do that. And also, when people offer you money for work, don't throw it back in their faces and No, it's up. important to have some money for your work. Right. So anyway, the next morning, with a brisk step, Tintin heads for the four-card gallery with his still concussion, I suppose. Anyway, today, Snowy, we're con- uh, I'm talking to Snowy, uh, we're conducting an opinion survey on, hmm, on what exactly? On solar-powered heating? Yes, yeah, solar-powered heating. That's an excellent subject. What a weird thing to be saying to yourself. Uh, he goes into the block of apartments which houses the galley. We'll start with the other tenants. All right, he examines the names of the occupant. And by the way, 
I want to be fair to this yeah. script in that this is not a finished script. No, it's not. So when I'm doing silly billy uh, business here, I realize that it's not a finished script. Yeah. We're just having a little fun. You are. I was. <laughs> anyway, he examines the names of the occupants listed besides the bell. Uh, there's Thomas uh, de Harmon, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Cleonage, Widow uh, Tricot. Does it say Widow Tricot? That's yeah. a weird thing to put on a doorbell. Sure. Uh, Miss Dory uh, Four. Oh, a pen. Uh, he, do, what is Dory Four? Dory Four. It's, uh, I can't remember what it means, but it is a word. Sorry, right. Sorry everybody. He ring- I think it's like an, an incomplete sentence or something. Okay. He rings the bell for Mrs. Uh, uh, Tricot. A friendly, smiling woman opens the door, a baby in her arms. Good uh, morning, madam. I'm conducting a survey about solar-powered heating. Would you be willing to answer a few questions? Come in, come in, young man. Tintin uh, comes out of the flat a while later, disappointed. Nothing there, I think. Now for the flat next door. Patience, Snowy. Uh, the door is opened by a man with an unwelcoming expression. What do you want? It's an opinion sur- uh, opinion survey, sir, about... I don't have an opinion. Not on anything. Now leave me alone. Slam. He seems the most sensible mm-hmm. so far. Yeah. Uh, whew, wham. Where have I seen him before? Ah, yes. At the Edenine Akas meeting. One of the master's assistants. I wonder if he recognized me. There must be a connection between the Edenine, uh, between Edenine, the microphone, and as soon as Tintin is gone, the man picks up a telephone. He certainly suspects something. He came knocking on my door on the pretext of some opinion survey. I understand. We'll take care of him. Yes, properly this time. All right, the next morning. On the front steps of Marlinspike, Tintin has uh, just mounted his scooter. Take care. You never know with those sort of people. Don't worry. What, t- what, are you, what sort of people are you talking about? Uh, don't worry. I'm only going into the village. But a short distance from the house, Snowy suddenly starts to growl. Looking back, Tintin realizes that a large car is coming after him. There he is. We can get him. They're going to catch me. <laughs> All right. There's a burst of automatic gunfire, and the scooter smashes into a tree. You, you, but you've been one of the pursuers so far, so I'll okay. give you that. Uh... All right. I got him. I got him. Up at the house, the captain and calculus are sitting on the terrace. The captain jumps up. Gunfire! What? Gunfire! A fire? Where? Oh, if they touch a hair of his head... Some distance away, two men are searching uh, both sides of the road. I'm I'm absolutely sure I hit him. There's his bike, not a sign of him. He can't be far away. Nothing. Perhaps he was swept away by the current? Imbecile! There are 20 centimeters of water in that stream at the most. Look, a car. Get going, quick! Too late, they've made off. Roadhogs! Bashy bazooks! Philoxera! Yeah, the cabin has just pulled up in his car. Uh, the gangster's car has long since disappeared. The captain, gun in hand, searches the roadside. Tintin! Tintin, where are you? Ah, there's a scooter, but Tintin, where is he? Is that you, Captain? Looking up, the captain sees Tintin in a tree where he's been hiding. You're... These, uh, these, uh, pollarded windows sometimes... Willows. What's that? Pollarded willows. Sorry about that. Pollarded willows. I was trying so hard to get, say pollarded correctly that I missed the other one. <laughs> yes. Pollarded willows sometimes come in handy, especially when they're hollow. Pollarded is when they cut, you know, they cut the tree down to its, you know, oh, okay, almost yeah. to like a bare stump. Makes sense. Someone shot at you. Yes, it's a habit. And this time they almost succeeded. Shh, listen. We hear in the distance, the fire brigade. A fire engine appears, you hurtling towards... You are me and I am you and... <laughs> okay, save it for the Beatles podcast. <laughs> uh, Marlon Spike. Uh, Tintin and the captains leap into their car in hot pursuit. They're going to the hall. The firemen jump out of the vehicle and run towards the house, closely followed by Tintin and the captain. 
Where is it? Where's the fire? There's a fire. What fire? Yes, yeah, someone called us to report a fire here. Cactus appears at the top of the steps. Oh, yes, here you are, gentlemen. I send for you. We have a fire. The captain told me so. This is the problem with your hearing nonsense. Yes, what? What's wrong? Anyway, the misunderstanding sorted out. Tintin, the captain, and Calculus uh, take stock around a table. But who is trying to get rid of you? And why? I wonder... To my mind, it all revolves around that Edenine Akas. He planted the jewel microphone transmitter on Miss Martine. What for if it wasn't a spy on Forkart? But it was definitely you who told me there was a fire. We must discover more about Edenine. Yes, but where can we find him? The overdressed windbag? Yes, where? Great snakes, I've got it. When Bianca Castafiori telephoned last week, she told me that she was going to spend a few days with him on Ishika. <laughs> Where's Ischia? It's an island across from Naples. Some hours later, an airliner lands at Naples air Airport. This is sheer deliberate, unqualified masochism to come 2,000 kilometers by air. And another two hours by sea. Oh, to find Castafiore. We must be raving mad. The two travelers arrive at their destination, the Hotel Regina, and make their way to the reception desk. Tintin and Haddock, uh, we made a reservation. Indeed. Welcome to Ischia, Signore. Please, uh, we need a little information. Can you please tell me uh, where to find the villa belonging to belonging to Mr. Edenine Akas? Uh, that's easy, Signore. I will show you. All right. And he leads them outside, points to a villa on top of a hill. Uh, Fortissimo's strains of, ah, these jewels bright I wear, wafting down, tell them all they need to know. <laughs> there, that is the villa of Signor Endarin Akas. The famous diva has just arrived there. Well, let's take a look. They head uh, towards the villa and uh, take cover nearby. The captain produces a pair of binoculars and begins to survey the house. Kind of interject. I like that he takes out binoculars to look at the house. That's like their first like time where they're like actually kind of spy worthy or whatever. Mm -hmm. Not just stumbling, bumbling in the front door. Yeah. Blistering barnacles. Ramo Nash. Ramo Nash. Yes, the high priest of Elfart, creator of the H that I bought. Oh, what was that H for again? <laughs> it's not for anything. <laughs> no. It's art. We're just making that part up. Uh, we must try to get into the house. I have a feeling uh, in there lies the key to this whole mysterious business. But how do we do that? They return to the hotel, go up to their rooms. See you later. Okay, see you later, Cap. Let's not even discuss it. <laughs> in his room, Tintin opens the window wide. What a marvelous view. I should really be thinking about how to solve that mystery. Uh, the, and then the phone rings. The captain, I expect. Hello? Yes? Yes, it is. Listen carefully, eh? There's a boat leaving in two hours. I strongly advise you to take it. The climate on Ischia doesn't suit you at all, you hoser. It could even become very unhealthy for you. Crumbs, that voice. <clears throat> uh, there's a knock at the door. Uh, sorry, he leaves the room and knocks at the captain's door. Come in. I've just received an anonymous... Phenomena. Telephone call. Uh, someone strongly advises for us to leave here, and fast. But who knows what we're here for? Uh, I've no idea, but news can travel very quickly on an island. Also, we're very famous people, remember? We walked on the we moon. We went to the moon. Even before then. Uh, even I the, forget. In the Congo, people recognize me from my reporting. That's true. Because I am a journalist. When you were a journalist. I still am a journalist. Uh-huh. We've established I, I'm okay, more a journalist than ever before. <laughs> All right. Whatever you. Where's your notebook, Tintin? Anyway, I have let me no see idea. your notebook. News can travel very quickly on an island. <laughs> the, the, the one thing we must avoid at all costs is Castafiore finding out that we are here. Ring, ring. Phone rings. Captain answers. Hello. Yes. Who? It's her. 
Castafiore, my dear friend. But how did you know? You old sly boots. Irma recognized you. She was taking a walk by the landing stage. You absolutely have to come here, Captain Carlock. The master is most adorable man. You must absolutely have to meet him. I, I, I'm sure, but y- yes, yes, yes. Oh, I, I promise. He's gone to Rome for a few days, but he'll be delighted to meet you. No, 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 no. The friends of our friends are our friends. Caramio, ciao. <laughs> Had it hanging up. Click. <laughs> Let's cut that off. Phew. That alters everything. The next morning, a horse-drawn carriage takes Tintin and the captain to the luxurious Villa Acas. A footman in a livery? Livery? You know this because you were Livery. In, livery. Very good. Uh, dressed in uh, outfit made completely they of livery. They work in a butcher shop. That's right. Uh, shows them uh, onto an immense... He knows about horses. Uh, an immense uh, reception room where uh, numerous guests are already assembled. Castafiore swoops forward to embrace them. My dear, dear friends, can I... <laughs> Carissa me, Carissa me, Carissa me, Carissa you, Carissa all of us while we're here, why not? Come, I simply must must introduce you, it's the 70s, I simply must introduce you to everyone. Where do I put my keys? (laughs) She decides, she's next to your binoculars. Anyway, you'll be needing those later. She descends upon an elegant woman in dark glasses. Let's not lose our our non-explicit rating now. Darling, let me present Skipper Drydock, one of my closest friends, a real old sea dog. This is... Angelina Sordi. Madam? Uh, just as the captain is bowing low, Angelina waves her arm in a sudden casual gesture. Her hand smacks the unfortunate captain hard in the face. Oh! My dear friend, how could you have guessed that a simple seaman knows how to kiss hands? <laughs> Meanwhile, Snowy approaches Castafiore's black miniature poodle. You were playing Snowy. What on earth is that? Who is this peasant? Hello, beautiful. <laughs> Overcome by such familiarity, the poodle turns tail, uh, squeaking loudly. <laughs> My treasure, come to me then, Diddums. What did that big bully of a dog do to you? There's justice for you, says Snowy. The incident is closed. Disgusted. Yeah, the introductions resume. This is Mr. Gibbons. He's an important, he's an import-export, Mr. Trickler, uh, director of an important oil company, Emir Ben Kalish Ezab, and Hello. Luigi Randazzo, a wonderful singer, as you are obviously aware. And how? And Ramo Nash, who you already know. The artist's uh, latest work is hanging in the room. It consists of a gigantic Z, or Z, surrounded by uh, a series of miniature Zs. Inspired. Tintin uh, himself is not mixing with the other guests. He discreetly inspects the room, noting uh, especially the two servants, who have all the charm of gorillas. What a particular smell. It's as if... As if... By the way, we should make a mention that uh, some of those characters earlier... Uh, yeah. Mr. Trickler... Uh, sorry, uh, Mr. Gibbons. He is we from, remember from the Blue Lotus. Blue Lotus. And He's the man that that uh, is uh, caning the uh, Chinese boy in the street, and Tintin uh, stops him. Boo! Uh, and Mr. Trickler, the director Mr. of the Import Oil Company from the Broken Year. Very good. He's the one who's uh, acting uh, to uh, between with the two con- com- companies or countries to to start wars so they can get the oil. Very good. So anyway, the reception is coming to an end. Some guests have already left. Well, uh, uh, I think we'll go back to our hotel. But Caramiso, it is out of the question. You Caramiso? Must... Caramiso, I don't know. Mio, have some miso soup, whatever you want to do. Listen, I get names wrong. I put on airs, but I know nothing. That's my character. My jewels. Uh, it's out of the question. You must stay here tonight. 
But uh, no, no, it's the seventies. This is how we roll. <laughs> no fuss. She beckons to two large servants. Please show these gentlemen to their rooms. Oh, this is your room, uh, Senor Tintin. <laughs> and this is your room, Senor uh, uh, Pescatore. They go to bed, but in the middle of the night, Tintin is awakened by strange noises. He goes to the window and sees three men loading a van. Uh, by the way, this actually could be what the picture on the front is. Uh, it looks oh, yeah. it looks as if, yes, it looks as if they're loading pictures or canvases. Why do it in the dead of night? Uh, when the van has departed, uh, Tintin decides to explore the villa. Armed with his flashlight, he sets off uh, the corridors of the house. Suddenly, he comes to a halt. It's a huge. There's a huge room, uh, and, uh, and and numbers are hanging. No, uh, no, hey, numerous sorry. pictures of sorry great, about that. Uh, by great masters. You know what? It would be ridiculous to have numbers hanging, letters hanging. That makes sense. That's right. But numbers. Wrong. Wrong story. That would be for the sequel. Anyway, yeah. great that's, masters. That's digital art. Oh boy, I'm gonna get every one of these names wrong. Modigliani. Oh, a Modigliani. He accidentally touches the canvas. Uh, a little paint comes off. It's still wet. And here's a Leger. Leger? A Re- yeah, Leger. Leger a Renoir, a Picasso, a Gauguin, a Monet. All fakes! A veritable factory for forging pictures and perfect imitations, too. I wonder who... Beautiful pictures, eh, aren't they, my friend? Uh, the lights go on. Uh, Edenine uh, Akas, uh, flanked by his two bodyguards, stands facing Tintin. Or uh, certainly whoever uh, painted these has uh, plenty of talent. He's really great. Uh, so much talent. Amazingly talented. What I can't say enough about, oh, sir, oh, sir. Ooh, <laughs> what a great job. Oh, but you know him. It's uh, our dear Ramo Nash. His latest brainwave is, is elf art. Behind that front, he can happily fabricate paintings by the masters. He has an extraordinary gift for imitation, eh? Naturally, as soon as they are dry, these pictures will be authenticated by a known expert. Poor Mr. Forecourt didn't want to accept our proposals. Besides, he wanted to expose the whole business to you. As for the unfortunate monastir, he wanted to blackmail me, eh? Poor fool. Stupid hoser. You got rid of him. I was forced to, eh? As for you, young man, I'm desperately sorry, but you know too much. You will have to disappear. You know Cesar? Uh, Cesar? Julius? Wait, are we in Tintin? No, Tintin or Asterix? What are we? What happened? Are we... (laughs) No, just Cesar, the sculptor. Oh, the okay, master... good. Woo, I thought we were doing a crossover. Weird way to end. <laughs> no, that was last last uh, story. Oh, that's crossover. true. Asterix was in the last yeah, one. Yeah. That's true. The master of compressionism, eh? Look, this is one of his. He's also an expansionist, as in this piece here. Well, my friend, we're going to pour liquid polyester over you. You'll become an expansion signed by Cesar and then authenticated by a well-known expert, eh? Then it will be sold perhaps to a museum or perhaps to a rich collector. You should be glad your corpse will be displayed in a museum, and no one will ever suspect that the work which could be entitled Reporter, <laughs> ironic, isn't it, constitutes the last resting place of young Tintin. Think about all that, my dear friend. Tomorrow, Ramo Nash will be here, and will turn you into a Cesar. <laughs> you there, take him away, and lock him up your you-know-where. Come on, move, says the bodyguard. Escorted by the two gorillas, Tintin is taken to a remote cell in the basement of the villa. And that... Wait, no, we still got more. Yeah. Uh, how, am I, how am I going to get out of it this time? In the corner of the dungeon, Tintin sees some packing cases. Piling them up, he manages to climb up to a ventilator protected by solid bars. Help! Help! Rescue! Uh, the grill in the cell door opens. No use shouting, my young turkey cock. No one can hear you. Losing heart, Tintin crouches in a corner, when suddenly a faint noise makes him get up. Snowy! 
Wait, I'll give you a message to give to the captain. To the captain, understand? Uh, Tintin scribbles a few words on a scrap of paper, folds it into four, and throws it to Snowy, but the paper falls back. After several attempts, Snowy manages to seize the message and dashes away. Uh, a long night passes. Day breaks when Tintin is still asleep. The bodyguard awakens him roughly. On your feet. Get moving. It's time for you to be turned into a Cesar. And that's the end. That's the end. But it's not the end. Uh, because, you know, as they say, uh, Tintin never ends. So <laughs> you are. just go back to the beginning again. Yeah. Now, uh, you can call us a couple of Mr. Cuts here, because we probably butchered that one. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was great. Yeah. So, a lot uh, of fun. Yeah. Uh, that was that was our attempt at. Uh, oh, I was looking at the thing. I'm hoping we recorded that. <laughs> I won't be able to remember all those amazing voices that we. By the way, if you're casting uh, animated cartoons, yeah. I know, I know. Please use this as our audition tape. <laughs> We're sure to get a lot of job offers out of this. Yep. Oh, oh boy. So that is where things end. It's okay. uh, you know, I know you're going to get into the context, yeah. context, but there's sure. been a couple of times that Tintin has kind of gone away for a period of time, and every time that has happened, it always feels like Tintin was in great danger. Like there well, was that's a, something we I talked about with with you before when we were talking. That's about right, this. Yeah. yeah. And it just feels like this kind of uh, this feels like it feels like there's a break. It feels like there it feels like Tintin hasn't ended because the the other times that this has happened in the past, it's always been on a cliffhanger, and it just feels kind of appropriate. You know, I, li- I like that. I kind of like the way well, it's that in- went. To me, it's interesting that the the that one the big break that occurred uh, when the war ended and the newspapers are closed down and Hergé was under a black cloud as a collabor- collaborator, and you know, uh, and the story ends with Tintin, you know, being buried slowly in the sand, mm-hmm. calling to Snowy, who is unconscious, laying by a rock, and the sand is slowly, you know, covering Tintin. And I love that this story basically ends. Let's let's ignore the guard just for the sake of this pretty yeah. package. It basically ends with Tintin once again, you know, about to be buried in something, about to be submerged in liquid polyester, uh, and you know he's calling for Snowy again, and that's the end of of the story. And it's kind of funny that both of them end on that kind of both stories. I mean, the one story continued on later, yeah. but both stories have their break in that moment of Tintin in utter danger. There's no no sign of how he can get out of this. Only Snowy can save him in, 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 both, in, in both cases. Well, you can also go with, if you want to be symbolic about it, you got the, uh, you got the villain at the end going, here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be a work of art forever. And yeah. you're going to be frozen in time forever yeah. as this boy reporter, and you're never going to age, and, and you'll always be this, and that is the truth. Because all of these stories... It's a little beautiful. It is a little beautiful. It's all frozen in time. I love it. All there. Yeah, yeah. that's true. That's a good point. Yeah, it could have ended in a better place, really, that... For, you know, it, it was obviously an accident that Hergé would have preferred to carry yeah. on with it. Um, but accidents uh, are the parents of art quite yeah. often. Yeah. So what's interesting with this story is, uh, so the Tintin and the Beccaros, it uh, finished, it ended the 13th of April in 1976. And so unlike, say, the long gap between Flight 714 and the Picaros, which was basically eight years, not necessarily that that Hergé wasn't working on it during that time, but just the publication. So let's say that he started working on it maybe 75, or maybe, sorry, maybe 73, sort of. So there's about a four to five year layoff where he wasn't doing any sort of Tintin work. Right. Pretty much as soon as Picaro's ended, he kind of picked up his pencil and started working on another story again. Not necessarily this story right away, because he had this idea that it'd be kind of like from about 1973, and it kind of came from doing Flight 714, which was the next thing he wanted to do was to set a Tintin story in an airport. 
that would be the only setting of the story. So okay. they would be at this airport. It would be another bottle episode, like it'd the, be kind uh, of a bottle Cassifiori episode, Fiori exactly. Because yeah. like, he felt like a, an airport was a perfect place to tell a story. Mm-hmm. You know that you know it's kind of it was a place of adventure. Yep. It's a place of encounters and danger, some, danger, unexpected situations. Characters enter and exit for uh, exactly. always a good reason. Yeah. It's a miniature city, so yeah. it's kind of a microcosm. A lot of vehicles. Yeah. And you could have love and tragedy. You could have comedy, adventure, whatever. Like all all that stuff could happen in this one enclosed space. So he started, like I said, he started thinking about this storyline in 1973, and he kind of been thinking about it before that, but it kind of came back in his mind. He was stopped in Rome, uh, the airport in Rome, and he had this idea. He kind of went, you know, this would be great. You know, he's just sitting there and just looking at everyone walking around and saying, you know what, this would make a great setting for a story. And so, and so finally, after he finished Picaros in 1976, he just kind of sat down and produced about 15 pages of notes and drawings and stuff like that. Same with, same as Elfart, basically. And it was it was the titled "A Winter Day at a Certain Airport." That was how he, that was the heading for it. And so, at the air, so basically the story is at an airport, uh, a series of strange circumstances. So, fo- like kind of strange, uh, a bunch of things happening at the same time. So we have fog. Of course, in '76, so there's fuel so- shortages, uh, cancel flights, etc. So the planes are unable to land or depart, and the airport begins to fill up with people who are stuck there. And so Tintin and Captain Haddock are there with Cap- with Calculus. They're accompanying him to a conference of adventures. Uh, of adventures. So, and then they meet the Thompsons there. So they're going sorry to a conference of adventurers. Of a conference for inventors. Oh, inventors. Yeah, because okay. I like the idea of a conference for adventurers. Yeah. That's also interesting. But continue. So, but no one gets there because they get have adventures before Absolutely. they can arrive. This is an example of that. So the Thompsons appear. They're going to a, another conference for detectives. Just detectives. Sure. Because that's all they are. And then uh, in the story, they're joined by the emir, uh, appears, Ben Kelly Shazab, who's buying a chateau for his son, mm-hmm. Abdullah. Uh, King Muscar IV from King Ottokar's Scepter comes. He's being wow. pursued by extremists. Uh, General Alcazar appears. He's on the way to Switzerland to check his numbered bank account. Uh, Castafiore comes and causes a, a bit of a stir because she refuses to sing for the stranded passengers. Then uh, the Bird Why Brothers. The Bird Brothers finally reappear. Oh, I like. I, I don't. I don't want to interrupt you on the Bird sure. Brothers thing, but I'm like, Why does Castor? I don't know. He's just, sing for he the was first just sort of making notes and stuff like that. So he didn't right. really come to. Okay. Yeah. She, was, yeah. she sings at the drop of a hat. You, you think, can't stop her. I don't know why she didn't. Okay. Uh, but the Bird Brothers. Yeah. Involved, tell me more. Involved in hashish, hashish trafficking, after they came out of prison, which is weird. It's almost like Erge forgot that one of the Bird Brothers escaped and was not ever recaptured. Huh. Okay. Uh, Julian Wegg appears, of course. Dr. Mueller comes into the story. Uh, Lazo Caritas is in the story. Senor Oliveira de Fig- Figueres, the uh, Portuguese merchant that we've met many times. Right. What are you going like that for? No, no, this is... And, uh, so many characters, right? No, no, no. This is one of those things where, like, I would actually get creeped out by this story reading that because I'd be going... Clearly, they're all dead. This is this is this is the this is the midway point to heaven or hell, and so it's like all these characters have now arrived. Yeah, you know, at, there's only one reason they would all be here, and yeah. like this is the waypoint, and now they're about to go off on their journeys to wherever they're going to go to. And then uh, the Maha- it's their final chance to do something to redeem themselves or not. One bird will, one bird will not. Uh, the Maharaja of Gopal appears, yep. who is mentioned in the Castafiore Emerald as. The, the giver of the Casper Emerald right. was a character in the uh, Jose and Jocko story, The Valley of the Cobras, but he actually makes would make an appearance in a Tintin story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as well as people from all over the world. That this, is a crazy uh, amount of people in that story. And there's also, like so the people of all kinds, Arabs, Jews, Japanese, Americans, and this Pakistani character who keeps appearing 
and asking stuff like, what time is it? Or where is the toilet? And no one knows where he comes from or why he keeps asking these questions. And it's not explained till the very end of the story, which I don't know that answer because RJ never worked it out. Okay. This was just his notes. By the way, he's God, if that's the story that that would I'm be talking good. about. Yeah. That would be good. And it's like, why were you mean to this one guy who was the lowliest of, of, among you? Tintin was nice to him. Tintin was uh, the only person who gave him the time of day because uh, Tintin's good. So now the problem with the story is there's twofold problems with the story. One is, yes, as you say, it's basically Castafiore Emerald again. It's basically a, with way more characters. With way more characters, but it's he, and what he started to do was he started to make it another game like Castafiore Emerald. So he wanted to create a story that could be started on any page and read to the end and yeah. understood, and then you'd finish it and go back to the beginning and carry on reading, and it would still make sense. It feels to me like when you say that there's this. Okay, again, the writer and me does this. Mm-hmm. When you go, you got to have this amount of characters in. Now we're, what we got to do is we got to do a 22 short stories about Glenn Gould. Yeah. We got to do. Uh, <laughs> so we get like maybe two pages each of each of these yeah. you know, stories, yeah. and you almost play it out like it's a, uh, a Sunday gag strip. Yeah. So here's Castafiore's story, but then you have a little through line of something else. But like everyone gets their own business, and then yeah, you can pay it all off at the yeah. end. But as you say, you could start it at any point and you just get that gag, yeah. play it off. And well, it's, well, it's non-linear again, necessarily. Sure. And just like the Castafiore Emerald again, he wanted to have this story that frustrated the reader's expectations. So right. he'd set up, oh, now the action's starting. No, right. it's not. You would pro- and again, sorry, again, if I, was, if I was doing it, and who wants to hear what I would do, but this is what I would do. I would start off with the captain complaining about having to wait. Like the, it would go, uh, the plane's been delayed. And yeah. the captain's fragging, snagging, fragging. And, oh, be calm, Captain. I'll go get you a water because that's all you can drink. Uh, and so he does that. And we end everything with, like, now here comes the plane. It's finally coming. And then and then it ends with, the plane has been delayed. Ah, fragging, snagging, which then you can go back to the beginning again. Sure. And now you're still stuck in that's that good. airport. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I like those kind of stories. I love I love TV shows that are able to make it so that the story is, is, a, is a cycle. There's, right. A few have done it. A few have done it. Yeah. I can't think of any other Oh, I can. All Dr- right. Dream on. All right. It starts off with his wife is married. Then he's divorced. His wife's married to another person. Right. That guy goes into a coma. Then they get married. Then in the story, they get near the end of the series, they get divorced again. And then the very last shot of the series is the, the husband in a coma's hand moving. Oh, okay. So then he wakes up. They're remarried. And then it can carry on from oh, there. Oh, neat. Okay. So, very yeah. good. I would never have thought we'd have a reference to Dream On in our Tintin podcast, but you did it. <laughs> I did it. Well done. I told you I would. All right. I told you. When we made our notes at the beginning of this, this <laughs> so series. I'm going to get this in somehow. I'm going to get Dream and On. I dare you. I bet you a Coke. <laughs> I said, it'll work. It'll be naturally inserted as well. <laughs> it won't feel unnatural. It won't feel like All I right. forced it. Unlike my voices for the whole episode. Uh, now, the problem was, is this, for him, the story broke down on just a simple fact. What, what is Tintin doing in this story? Like, what is his role? Is he just another passive Tintin character again? Mm-hmm. And he was kind of tired of the passive Tintin character. And in fact, because his dismantling of Tintin had made him unheroic, you know, and he realized that. And he actually confided to his assistant's uh, assistant who had sort of taken over for his old assistant uh, who had got old and sick. And so this guy named Alain Baran, who Alain Baran had taken over kind of being his secretary, etc., he said, I want to return to Tintin's beginnings. I want the reporter detective, the mystery. To, like, that's what I want. He wanted, like, this mystery, and he wanted it to be an adventure yep. story. And he also recognizes with Haddock and Calculus as well, as he worked on Elfart, he noted in his workbook that it was important that his characters regain their essential natures. Uh, on the other hand, well, as I said at the beginning of the show, the cure that he wants to give to Haddock also has this, these side effects. I don't know if it would have carried on in other stories in his plan that 
that then the captain would be bald with purple blotches, which would be kind of a weird uh, story element to introduce in every story from mm-hmm. the night. That feels a bit like uh, the Thompsons growing crazy mm, hair yeah, yeah. and turning green and then blowing you bubbles. Know, when he was making notes, then he would... Absolutely. He would, and again, yeah. we're getting first draft, exactly. second draft tops. Yeah. You yeah. know, and when you're talking about going back to the captain's essential nature, and again, we're just judging from what we have here. Yeah. It did feel like calculus definitely goes back to what he is. Yeah. You know, the mishearing guy, mm-hmm. you know, calls the fire brigade when it shouldn't. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> Haddock doesn't, you know, Haddock goes back to his classic waiting in the car and being grumpy. And, uh, well, I come, don't think come he, with me. I don't All think right, he goes, here I come. Yeah, I don't think he goes back to it. I think, I think he's, his character is kind of at this point, and maybe, maybe Hergé would fill it in as, as yeah. he, went back over the story but at this point you know he's kind of there's not much for him to do i mean one no. of his major props is gone well so. what i what i do like besides I mean, a monocle off the he? top though what i do like that they do is that uh you know he you know he's introduced to the world of fine art yeah and he's got to go well, i got some fine art and here it is yeah and it's like well you don't know what this is no and i'm angry that i don't know what this <laughs> is i feel like i've been taken yeah I've, uh, uh, you know he's the working class guy who you know is in this crazy world and yeah. that's great you can bounce stuff that's kind of fun yeah like I, I felt like like later on i'd like to see a little bit more of that mm-hmm. and maybe as we got near the climax we would have had that yeah but i also like the hints that castafiori is a bit of a fraud as well Okay. I like I like the little. Hints. I don't think she's a fraud. I think it's just she's she's just a fum- she, fumble mouth kind of, uh, or she's just in her own world. In her own world, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think I think she's just kind of a spoiled, wealthy lady who's you know a trend a trendy person as That's well. That's what it feels so. like. Like she's hot, but again, that makes her a little bit of a fool, right? Like she's yeah, the fool, yeah. the fool in her money that's yeah, parted, yeah, right? Yeah. So she's being taken advantage of this way. He's being taken. I don't think. Of he, a different yeah, way. I think Haddock is more. It's more. It's not. He's not being taken advantage of by his stupidity. I think he's being taken advantage by his politeness. Mm. That he buys an H out of because two people are telling him he should. Right. And he's like, well, I can't say no. I've got to buy this H. You know. Right. And it's you know because he's nouveau riche. Because yeah, know what to do with it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he's he's in this situation where he's the Philistine, and so he's you know. Can, sort of forced to to purchase in in this one uh castafiori though comes across as much more of a snob <laughs> than she has in uh in past adventures but we haven't seen her in her milieu before this is the first time that we've seen her you know before she's always interacting with 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 tintin and and haddock in sort of their situation right this is the first time they've entered her world so that she's with the snobs and yeah you know, the same she does, things like who would have thought it a simple captain yeah. like well, she hasn't remember really when come, she, she sorry remember when she welcomes them aboard the yacht in the red in the red sea sharks she's very uh she's kind of um condescending there as well okay you know the art must speak to the little man and stuff like that all right yeah that's fair okay okay so so yeah so that was the problem with that story for him so he kind of put the brakes on that and then he started so you know he started trying to work so now i want a real mystery singing so he started looking around and one thing he wanted to do was bring tintin into his interests so he was he loved collecting art he loved the world of art. He had a, a great collection, a very well curated collection of, of art. He was very up on modern art. You know, he wasn't buying stuff from the 19th century and from the 18th century. He was buying now. You know, he had a, he had Warhols. He had Lichtensteins. He had uh, we talked about some of the other stuff he had before. Some of his favorite paintings, like Miro, who is a little older than, than these, but uh, the um, what was his name, Luciano. Oh, I wish I could remember his name now. Sorry, everybody. But, you know, the, he collected a lot of, like, up-to-date artists. So, you know, he had... And so he wanted to kind of bring that art into his... Into into Tintin. And it kind of brought a, a little bit a little bit of extra enthusiasm to the story. And I think you can recognize that when you read what he had written. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so he had, you know, as usual, he kind of assimilated a bunch of newspaper articles and stuff that he, he had read 
and started working the story out. So one of the first and I think main influences was this uh, art dealer whose name was Fernand Legros. And this guy was an art dealer who sold forgeries uh, that were painted by this man named Elmir Dahori. And now Dahori was an artist that basically he was working in an older style in a time when that was no longer au courant. So he was a bit of a, considered a bit of a hack that he could do, you know, he could do so well painting, you know, such and such. And so what he did, but, you know, he could do really great Picassos and stuff like that. So his art was, so he couldn't make it as a, a career of it. So he began to copy and sell Picassos and, uh, you know, Modigliani's probably, wouldn't know, whoever was popular, Brock's and all kinds of things like right. that. And what he would do is he would sell them in America where people were kind of not as up to date and aware maybe what was available in, in art galleries right. and stuff like that. But it did sort of start to catch up on him. Like he was selling them mail order and it wasn't just, you know, it was kind of working against him. And so he met this Fernand Legros who was this flamboyantly eccentric character who always wore sunglasses wear this battered old cowboy hat, wear these full-length like fur ja fur coats, like floor-length fur coats and jackets, and these big necklaces with huge pendants on them. And and I always had this like this big wild beard and long hair and just like it was a really unkempt character. And so he was he started to uh, sell the art, and he had like all kinds of various little gimmicks that he would do. Like uh, he would not declare it at the border. And then be like, oh, yes, I forgot about that. It's here. And so then they'd, they would take it away from him and inspect it. And then they would look at it, you know, and they didn't have ex super experts. So they'd look at Dehori's paintings and go, oh, yeah, these are real. These are actual Picassos. Mm. So then they would charge him for the Picassos, but it acted as a certification right, right. Of, of authenticity. And so then he was able to sell these. And he would, like, uh, doctor art books and stuff like that and insert the Dehori paintings into them. And so people would look at them and go, oh, see, here it is here. This is the Picasso, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, it was very... It was very very uh, smart, but eventually, as all forgeries will catch up to you, because you're putting all this stuff into a limited market, right? And so, <laughs> sorry, just picturing. And then he went to jail, but then they found out it was a fake guy that just looked like him that was in jail all this time. It's like he really is good, this guy. <laughs> he really is good. <laughs> so, uh, so Ergy, you know, he may have read. Uh, there's a book by uh, this author named Clifford Irving who did the the Howard Hughes diary, the fake diary. Uh, he was the one who did that, and he, but he wrote a book about. Uh, Legros called Fake, mm -hmm. about Dehori and Legros. And then uh, Orson Welles' film, F is for Fake, which came out in the, like, 75, also dealt with Dehori and the Legros story. So Hergé may have seen that, or he may have read this, the book. But whatever case, that suggested a lot of, like, the look of Enadine uh, Akas is very, very much like like Legros. Okay. With the sunglasses and the long hair and the beard and the, the long coats and the, and the pendants with the, and the jewelry and stuff like that. All very much out of that style. Just the hat is different. He kind of wears like a pillbox or fez almost in the stories, in the, the drawings in the book, whereas in the, it is actual cub hat. When it was drawn by the assistants, they may have changed the hat to something that was, that was you know. Um, fez is funny. Another art forger, this guy named Hans van Megren. I don't know how much this had, but Hergé apparently read about him and, and sort of, and was sort of interested. And I don't know how much it had to do with the story, though, because this guy only counterfeited Vermeer, I believe, or two mm. different Dutch painters, Vermeer and another guy. And he worked uh, in the kind of the beginning of the 20th century. And so he, uh, once again, another another guy who was working uh, in a sort of in a style that wasn't was kind of considered hack in the early 20th century. No one wanted someone who could do the old masters really well anymore. So uh, what he decided to do was he would really do the old masters. And so he figured out what he would do is he would like 
carefully duplicate Vermeer's working method. So he would like mix his own paints using authentic painting supplies that Vermeer would have used. Right. And he would buy 17th century canvas. So he'd probably buy like old 17th century paintings and paint over those paintings right. to get the actual canvas. And then he would like paint with badger hair brushes. Everything was, was wow. authentic. And uh, he would use like f- this stuff, uh, phenylformaldehyde, which is basically like Bakelite. He would paint that on it and it would like artificially age the paint. And then he would bake them in an oven. And then when they were baked, he would then take them on a cylinder and roll them on, roll them on the cylinder to crack them and then fill the cracks with India ink. And that kind of artificially instantly aged them. So they looked really old. And he made like a huge amount of money doing this. Yeah. Huge amount of money. But what happened was he sold a painting to an art dealer who sold the painting to Goering, Hermann Goering, who was uh, this German Nazi, the, yeah. the guy who was in command of the Luftwaffe. Let me just say, boo! <laughs> and so... You hear Goering's name, you got to boo. Boo! But what happened was, is the sale worked its way back to him. Mm-hmm. So now he was accused of being a collaborationist and a, oh. and a plunderer selling Dutch masters to the Nazis for, for profit. And so that was a hanging offense and so he took the lesser offense, which was to tell them that he was actually a forger and the painting was a fake. And so he ended up going to jail and forfeiting all his money, mm-hmm. except for the money. He divorced his wife during the war and gave her a lot of money. So that was his way of getting around this if something bad happened. And so uh, basically she was proved, you know, they couldn't prove that she knew what he was doing. So she got to keep the majority of the fortune that he'd yeah. made, but he lost everything else. Uh, and so it has an interesting story. Um and there's tons, there are tons of those paintings, like in, like in museums all around, like in North American museums, there's all these fake Vermeers. And it reminded me of that film that we were talking about a little while yeah. ago, Tim's Vermeer, where he went carefully through this We were talking process. about it on our uh, Sneaky Dragon yeah, podcast. Yeah, There's a film, I don't know if it's still available on Netflix, but it's... I don't uh, think it is, but yeah, it's worth looking up. It's worth looking up. There's a man who figures out a process to duplicate how Vermeer painted. This guy just did it because he was very talented. He didn't have to use tricks to do it, but it's interesting. The third thing was that kind of influenced the story was Hergé was reading in Paris match about the guru Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Do you remember that guy? This that was very familiar. much in the story, very much in the news in the early 80s. Okay. Uh, he was basically this very controversial guru, kind of called the sex guru at the time, because mm-hmm. it was a very freewheeling commune that he, that he had. And he was thrown out, he was basically kicked out of India. And so he went to America and he started this commune uh, near the Dales in Portland, or in, in Oregon, uh, this town called Antelope. He bought a bunch of property there, and he had all these followers there, and they had like 93 Rolls Royces. Everyone had a Rolls Royce, and uh, the, there was a lot of conflict with the, with the local residents, and they even tried to poison the residents there, this Whoa. commune. Yeah, so eventually he, they got arrested for that, and he was kicked out of the country, but... but um, Hergé read about him in Paris Match, was very interested in this idea of, you know, these sort of weird religious sects that were sort of popping up. And so that's what Endadine Akas is sort of based on in that sense, a sort of, you know, obviously fake mystic guru. Um, if you look at him in the stories, he looks very much like Rastapopoulos. Okay. And it's possibly why uh, Tintin keeps saying, that voice, it sounds familiar, I know that voice. And that he recognizes it's Rastapopoulos, but he doesn't, because he looks so different, he's not. Uh, now, it's possible that Hergé changed his mind on that idea. Um, partly when he was making notes, he kind of changed what he was thinking of, where the direction he was going. Right. Now, Rastapopoulos, he's in space right now, right? Apparently not. We oh. don't know where he ended up. Okay. Last uh, time we saw him, he was heading into space. 
Well, we don't know where they, they, we didn't see him heading into space. We didn't see where the flying saucer went at all. They could have just taken them somewhere else. The last time we saw him, he was in a flying saucer being taken away. Let's say that much. Sure, sure. Space. (laughs) (laughs) You may jump to that conclusion. Right. Dave, if I ever see you getting into a flying saucer and it goes away, I'm not going to think that you're in Italy. I'm going to think you're in space. Okay. Ischia. Uh, So other things you incorporate into the art critic are the art expert Jacques Monesty and the gallery owner Yvon Fourcourt were inspired by his friend uh, Marcel Stahl, owner of the Carrefour Galleries. Ah, Four card? Carrefour. There you go. Uh, And so the story was initially entitled Tintin and the Forgers. And because then when he hit on this idea of elf art, he changed the title to Tintin and Elf Art, which Michael Carr says, or sorry, yeah, Michael Carr says should be actually, should be translated in English as uh, Alpha Art. Why is that? Because it's from the alphabet. Okay. So the actual, uh, you know, the alpha art. Alpha art. I'm trying to think the what prefix, sounds better. The prefix is alpha, mm-hmm. so it should be alpha art. Okay. But yeah. Alpha art is the French version. So, uh, so yeah. So he sketched out. Well, you can charge more if you say it's French. So yes, good for you. He sketched out a lot of pages. What we have is what was edited down for the for the book. Um, you know, he wor- and then he actually worked out the first three three pages of it. We can see that he's starting to work out the actual thumbnails, the kind of finished thumbnails to turn those into the actual pencils. But uh, the rest, you know, he just didn't finish that. The rest of the story is in a very unfinished state. Now, what happened was after he finished Tintin the Picaros, he was seventy years old, and around that time he started to feel very tired, like extremely tired, uh, to the point of absolute exhaustion. Like he just couldn't do anything, and it went undiagnosed for a long time. And he just became very frail and very tired. And then he started working on the story, uh, you know, 78, starts working on it. But then 79 comes, it's the 50th anniversary of Tintin. So basically the entire year was taken up with all this, you know, preparing for it, writing about it, interviewing about it, talking about it, attending, uh, you know, openings and galleries and going on television and radio and getting interviews all about Tintin. So most of that year was just a write-off. And when 1980 came, he was wiped out. Like he was so exhausted that he could just barely do anything. And so finally, they they finally figured out that he had um, uh, what was it that he had? Well, I'll tell you in a bit. Okay, suspense. <laughs> yeah, he had osteomyelofibrosis, which is a rare cancer of the bone marrow. Oh, okay. And so it just yeah, it was inoperable, uncurable oh, at that time. Okay. And so basically what he just had was blood transfusions that kind of gave him a bit of pep, kept it going for a while because his body was no longer producing white blood cells. So the blood would just sort of run out of white blood cells and they'd have to re-give him new blood transfusions. How often would he have to get these? Every month. Okay. Every month. And so he had various donors. There was one guy who was uh, apparently an Italian gentleman whose last name was Martini. And so Erge took to blaming everything that happened to him on Martini. So if he couldn't park the car properly, he'd be like, damn Martini and his blood. <laughs> so at least he had a sense of humor about it. Yeah. Uh, Let me just ask you, sorry, to back it up a little bit. 50th anniversary of Tintin. Mm-hmm. Did it seem like Hergé enjoyed that? Was there any, uh, or do you not know? I don't know. I, I think people don't really know. I mean, he took part in all of it. Right. He did did what he did when he needed to. He was a good soldier, good Boy Scout. Uh, or you know, so he just did his duty. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that he had much enthusiasm for Tintin until near the end of his life, uh, as he was working on. You know, as he was starting to get weaker and weaker, he actually started planning, like, having the studio move closer to him so that he could continue working on it. Like, right. He was that enthusiastic about it that, you know, he had a sudden kind of real interest in it. So, yeah, I don't think that he... I think as the end drew near, I think he started 
to recognize what how important Tintin right. was for him. I know. mean, just uh, just me, and again, I don't know what anyone's thinking or feeling, but at least near the end, and I'm sorry, you know, he had to go through what he went through, but it, at least he got that kind of burst of love for a year where, like, the world went, thank you for Tintin, you know. On yeah, the, yeah. You know, sure. That's, oh, yeah. that's, that's great. That you is know? super great. Super great. So um, now, obviously, this, the story, as it went, was not completed. Hergé... Uh, Hergé, he never confided to anyone how he saw the story concluding or where he thought it saw it going. And he may not have known himself. Right. I mean, he's taken, you know, art forgeries and uh, re- religious sects, you know, kind of uh, outside outside religious sects. And how are those going to mesh together? Or are they? Are they mm-hmm. going to be part of like a winding plot line? Was he going to go back and kind of incorporate things into the story? You know, once he kind of got the bare bones of it sketched out, then he would go back in and kind of fill in details to kind of fill up parts of it that he maybe thought were unexplained to kind of weave in elements that, you know, he wanted to include in the story. Uh, so he said just before he died, unfortunately, I cannot say much about this forthcoming Tintin adventure because though I started it three years ago, I have not had much time to work on it and still do not know how it will turn out. I know very roughly where I am going. I am continuing my research and I really do not know where the story will lead me. So after he died, um, and he passed away very peacefully and he was very... He was very at peace with what was happening to him. He would say, I'm going to the good God. That's what he would say. And uh, what happened was he just got more and more weak and frail. Eventually he had to go to the hospital where he passed into a coma and then just passed away and died. So, and that, you know, obviously it was a huge deal in Europe. Mm-hmm. Over here is probably like a, a one, one like article, small article in a newspaper. But over there, like uh, the magazine Liberation, every news article in it, was illustrated by a panel from a Tintin story. Oh, wow. So it, they found something that related to that story and wow, used that okay. as, you know, just stuff like that. This, this real celebration of, of, of his accomplishment. Um, so after Hergé's death, Casterman wanted the story to be published. They wanted someone, they, to, they wanted it to be finished. Money. Yes, yeah. of course. And so, uh, Fanny Remy, uh, and I think under pressure from, from Casterman, you know, she's still devastated by Hergé's death. And, but she has people hounding her, you know, we need to do this, we need to do that, we need to get the story finished, you know, all this stuff. And so she asked Bob DeMore to finish the story. Then, uh, after he worked on it for a little while, a few months later, she came, she changed her mind, yeah. uh, under the advice of this guy's sort of a Tintin expert named Benoit Paters. He talked to her and told her that they shouldn't finish it. And so she told, he was right. Yeah. And she told Bob DeMore that, that we should just leave the work unfinished. Yep. Uh, probably realizing that, yeah, Hergé wouldn't have approved. Um, now, in Hergé's famous interview with Numa Sadul that he gave in, in the early 70s, he said of, he said, um, there are, he said, there are certainly a number of things which my collaborators, collaborators can do without me, and many that they can do better. But to breathe life into Tintin, Haddock, Calculus, and the Thompsons, and all the others, I believe that only I can do that. Tintin and each of the others is me. As Flaubert said, Madame Bovary, c'est moi. It is highly personal work, in the same way as a painter's or novelist's. If others were to continue Tintin, they might do better. They might do worse. One thing is certain, they would do it differently, and so it wouldn't be Tintin anymore. Uh So I think that's kind of a definitive statement of where he wanted it to end. So uh, what happened was she decided to publish Hergé's unfinished sketches in book form. And so we were talking about the one I have. That was issued in 1986. So what happened was uh, Benoit Peters and some other Tintin experts went through all the pages and kind of selected the the ones they thought fit the story best, would like the most had the best continuity to them. 
And they kind of collated those together into the story that we have now. And when they published the original hardcover book, it was published with, on one side, it was published in two halves. On one side is the script extracted from the, from the, the, uh, the thumbnails. And then on the other side, on the right hand side, you have this kind of almost like a notebook. Yeah. That has all the, has all the pages in it's it. It's a so, nice, it's a nice way of doing it. Yeah. So you get a sense of, this is the, this is his art and this yeah. is, this is the story. And, uh, but what happened when they published it was uh, suddenly all these pirated versions appeared of the story because people had this part of the script. And so they're like, oh, this is really interesting. Like, I could finish a Tintin story. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the first one was published under the pseudonym of Ramo Nash. Um, so just, just a few months after the, the, the book appeared. Sure. And it's okay. The art is okay. Um, so that appeared. And I don't know the story. I don't know the whole story of that one. Uh, the second and most faithful to Hergé's art was actually published by a Canadian cartoonist named Yves Rodier. He uh, published uh, a full album. He finished the story. I have to say, reading the synopsis of it, it's not it's not Hergé. Like it lacks a certain snap. The yeah. ending. Did that? He they actually finished the story. Yeah, he did all all sixty two pages. Oh, okay. Now, where where does the story uh, end? Where does Hergé's story end? Hergé's story ends with Tintin about to be. Uh, I understand that, but what page number would you say? Forty two. Forty two. All yeah. right. So he adds another twenty pages to it. Understood. And basically, his stuff is like. Uh, Tintin is somehow there's some problem with the with the the procedure. Tintin hides, and Snowy's able to find him and cut and undo his his, his ropes or whatever that are tying him. Mm-hmm. And then they he and Captain Haddock go to escape, and then they're recaptured, and they're brought back again. And then uh, uh, Cass reveals himself as being Rastapopolis. And then they're in another pickle. Okay. Which, Does Rastapopolis uh, say where he was? No. Okay. Well, his memory would have been erased. Yeah. Fair enough. So then, uh, so then, and I think Thompson is there as well, or Alan is there as well. Okay. And then, and so then, uh, I can't remember all of it. It's it's be, it's pretty pedestrian. It doesn't really have like any big kind of where Snap. you're like, wow, that's yeah. what an ending, or what a conclusion to that story, or I can that's really cool how Erge blah blah blah. You know, there's no calculus of the ending of it. It's this way that right. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, but what's interesting is that um, he met Bob Demore. Who was really impressed by this? Because he probably did it. He published about sixty of the books, okay, and just gave them out to friends, just as like a gag. And he had, you know, kept his own. And his is actually signed. So he just did it uh, for fun. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. All right, yeah. I, I got no problem. Yeah, he with never that. sold it. He never sold it. That's anything. good. That would I'd have a beef with that. Mm-hmm. Okay, go ahead. And so, and then he sh- he met Bob Demore and showed him to him. And Bob Demore is super impressed by it. He actually he actually thought we could finish this together. He contacted Greg, mm-hmm. and said, you know, we can work on the script together. We can finish it. And he went to uh, Hergé, Fondation Hergé and said, uh, you know, I'd like to, um, you know, work on this and to, we could finish it. But they said no. Yep. They said no. Good choice. <laughs> yes, I agree. Yep. Uh, and anyway, Bob DeMar didn't live much longer. It was 91. And so oh, he only lived a few moments okay. and passed on. Another one that was done was by, uh, it's called by ESNBA, which was some a group of students from the uh, Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Paris. Just as an exercise. Sure. You know, took the script and drew their own version of it. Once in this one, they didn't complete it. They just drew it to where the script stopped, and that mm-hmm. was enough for them. And once again, they're not trying to make money off of it. No, it's an it's a nice art exercise. Yeah, sure, I'm all I'm all. And there's been that. some there's been some other sure. versions as well. I I, I feel uh, tempted to do it. It's fun. Yeah, it is fun. It is sort of interesting to to, to do. Um, yeah. So there you go. The end. 
Yeah, I saw a couple of those were on were online, and I wasn't mm. sure if anyone was uh, trying to sell those or or not. But I'm glad to I'm glad to hear that they were just done for fun. I, I got no problem with, with. I think they were done for fun, but I think there has been pirated versions that were sold, and I think that um, I think. Um, well, let me Rochier, say, for one, may, put it online so that you know anyone can download yeah, it. And not, that's yeah. a, that's okay. Yeah. I, I got no, I got no beef with that. Uh, but yeah, selling it, no, I don't, I don't care for that. It's fan fiction. You mm-hmm. shouldn't be able to sell fan fiction to me. No, you know? no, I agree. Well, partly because it's stealing from, yeah. from the copyrighted. Yeah, I mean, I know Airshay is no longer around, but his widow is still is still uh, is legally entitled to the profits from. I got more artistic beef than I have the other beef because to me it's like, you know, it, there's a limited amount of money that uh, the estate would be making. They'd be making money off the 23 books. Yeah. So if you add a 24th book, it's not like, oh, now you're not going to make money off this 24th book. It's someone else is going to make money yeah. off it. Yeah. So it's a different it's a different situation. You're not sure. taking money away. You're just not giving extra money. But artistically, yeah. knock it off. Yeah. It also, it, again, thing. we've yeah. talked about how it ends. And the fact that it ends sort of in the middle of something mm. makes it a bit more magical, makes it a bit more... It's okay. We're yeah. just taking a break. We're not saying goodbye. We're yeah. just saying we'll be right back, and it's and it's and that's fine. That that uh, that just feels better in the soul than yeah. uh, than I, we're going to conclude it. Now it's buttoned and it's buttoned in kind of a, a half arsed way. And uh, there you go. Your story's finished. Sure. You happy now? Because now we're done forever. Mm-hmm. I don't want that. Yeah. I want the open ended story and like yeah. what's going to happen? Snowy's going to probably rescue Tintin because that's what Snowy does. Well, t- well, here I'll just say this. I feel that if. Um, if Hergé had had a completed script that they're working from, uh, then you know I wouldn't be totally opposed to them to mm-hmm. them doing it. It would not be actual Hergé; it would be you know Ersatz Hergé. But it wouldn't you know it would be interesting to see. The problem is still though is that even you know when the book was basically completed, he would still go back in it and take out panels and change things. So there, a book was never finished until it was published for Hergé. So there's just no way to. To guarantee Absolutely. that you're getting pure Hergé. And now that you've said that thing about all the characters are me, that yeah. to me then, no, then no one else can do it. Yeah. yeah. When you say when you say that too, the other thing that kind of struck me was how we've been talking about the last, well, for, mainly you, I have been saying this, but for the last two issues you've been saying how these characters are acting out of character. Yeah. And, but if it's Hergé and the characters are Hergé, yeah. then maybe they're not. Maybe that's just where Hergé is right yeah. now, you yeah. know? So who are we to say that? You know, if, well, Tintin, if Tintin acts in the... He st- knew he was doing it. He himself said that. I mean, he had not okay, if, count- if he counters it and says yeah. these characters were acting out of character, then yeah. that's, a, that's a different situation. Yeah. But, you know, as you, as you age, certain things change and maybe your characters change. You look mm-hmm. at, again, I keep going back to Charles Schultz. And, and you know, uh, Peanuts was a very different strip by the end than it was at sure. the beginning, but sure. it was still him yeah. the whole ride, yeah. you know, to the end with a shaky hand and it's, it's, it's Peanuts all the way through and no one can do the Peanuts comic strip but Dra- him. Drawing with his left hand instead of his right hand? I don't, I don't, did he do that? Yeah, he had a stroke. Okay. And couldn't use his right hand anymore, so he taught himself to draw with his left hand. That's very impressive. Yeah, it is impressive. I, I only think of one other cartoonist that did, did that, which was H.T. Webster, who was a cartoonist in the early 20th century, who drew a very ornate, you know, very scr- yeah. scratchy pen line style. And, and yeah, he had a stroke and re- learned to re- relearn drawing with his left hand. Yeah, I was looking at the last couple of Peanuts uh, comics, and they're still Peanuts. Yeah, they're they're still, still full-on Peanuts. Yeah. And my feeling on Peanuts is similar to what I feel about Tintin, which is no one else should do the no, strip. It's too personal. No one else should do uh, Tintin comics. Mm-hmm. I don't mind people doing actually like a Peanuts book, but that's a separate situation because 
uh, Schultz allowed Peanuts comics that were not drawn by yeah. him. So I'm like, yeah. okay, whatever he allowed when he was alive, I'm fine. Cartoons, movies, whatever, yeah. they're not the strip. As, and well, the, as long as they don't say by Charles Schultz on the comics. That's right. Yeah. Or you can say like Schultz's yeah, Peanuts yeah, sure. and same Hergé's Tintin. Yeah. But yeah. So that's how that's how I feel about you know the movies or anything mm-hmm. else that comes out the yeah. Teletoon uh, animated series whatever that's their own thing but the books are the books and the comics are the comics yeah. and that's yeah that's just him so yeah that would have bothered me if someone else had uh, finished it well it's funny um, my French isn't great I can read the books because they have pictures mm-hmm. in them and I've read a couple of French novels when I was younger mm-hmm. but I've always had trouble reading Alfart. So my reading of it was basically looking at the pictures and going, hmm, interesting. So this was basically my first time reading it through. Oh, is that right? I was reading this book, yeah, because this book is in English. So I was much able, able to get the nuances better. My problem is I can read French words, but if it's an idiom, you know, if, it, if there's any kind of idiomatic expression, I'm lost because I, I, I've never lived in France. And so I don't, I'm not a part of, I'm not a part of that culture. So yeah. when it says, you know, like I remember like reading, um, uh, Maurice Tiu book, uh, one of the Jules Jardin books, which is called Sur Boom pour Quatre which is basically, well, I mean, like, what is Sur Boom? S-U-R-B-O-U-M. So I had to, like, search, like, m- online, all over the place to finally discover that it meant surprise party. Ah. But it was a 50s French slang for surprise party. Neat. Well, if I, li- if I lived in France, right. maybe because I watched old TV shows or read an old book, I might know that bit of, just like I know 23 Skidoo daddy which you Because know, you're a very old man. Because No, because I watched Popeye cartoons when go. I was That's a kid. And they, quite a young man. and they made that joke in those cartoons. And so then I I learned that ex- expression from I'm, the 1920s. I'm glad you got to read this then for the first time. I hope yeah. you don't have those voices in your head when you read it in the future. Um, <laughs> but here's here's something that I, what I... I just want to say one thing. Oh, you say your thing and then I'll say yeah. something. What I was fun. struck by was the enthusiasm and the fun of the story. Mm-hmm. After reading Picaro, after reading Flight 714 and Picaro's, which, you know... I, when I read them as a younger man, I wasn't totally happy with Flight 714, I must say. I never minded the Picaros that much. It was actually rereading it in chronologically. It kind of bothered me more because I could see the weaknesses in, you know, as coming at the ending of it rather right. than in the middle of a jumble of books that I was reading. Uh, but reading this, I was really enjoying the enthusiasm There's of it. There's a joy and, to the story. And how much it pops. Yeah, yeah and how much, he's a, how much he is a reporter in it. Oh, my gosh. Is he and how much a he's a detective. Mm-hmm. That he does some actual detecting. Sure does. You know, actually. Looks at the skid marks. Looks at the skid marks. Oil. Works out the, what, the, what the necklace is for. Yeah. You know, by doing a little trick. And just things like that. You know, he's able to. Yeah, it's, it's uh, interesting. That Almost has a love interest. Almost have a look. The yeah. assistant. That's a very James Bondy thing. That's it's just a, like I yeah. accuse you. What? How could you? Oh, I'm so sorry, my darling. Like if it was, if that would have been a perfect way to to finish the story. Would be Tintin to to end up with that with Miss Martine. Yeah, I would be surprised if something didn't because ha- you got to bring her back. What mm-hmm. are you going to do? Yeah, you know, you've got Castafiore with the captain. Oh, yeah. he doesn't want that. Yeah, and then you got Tintin with her. It would have been really good because I, I feel. Having read these stories again as an adult, I feel that not in the early ones, but later on, I feel like a, a, a female character would have been a female character that to be a companion on at least one of his adventures would have been an interesting story. Yeah, that it didn't always need that Catholic Purity League level separation of the sexes. You know that not even a female could appear near him yeah. in a panel. Otherwise, they're just going to start doing it. You know. Yeah, it turns out he actually ends up with that shrewish woman. That would be ironic. <laughs> now, here's but what he I, loves numbers. That's right. Here's what I here's what I like though. When you're saying that you uh, your reading in French is not that great, but you read but you read them in French. Yeah. What I like is 
you're going to still be discovering stuff probably for the rest of your life reading these books, right? There's going to be a little, you're going to read a book and it's going to go, you know what this phrase meant? Or you know what this was a pun about? And it's going to completely, it's going to, it's like when you're a kid and you're, you watch a, watch a movie and go, that's great, but you don't know the references. Sure, you yeah. don't know what it's parodying. Yep. As you get older, yep. all of a sudden, oh, that's a James, mm-hmm. oh, that's a this, oh, that's a Bible, th- this is a thing. I got it. You know, I, now all of a sudden these And you're lo- watching Ten Commandments. That's right. That's the, a Bible reference. That's right. The Looney Tunes, you know, all of a sudden all the yeah, references make sense. Sure. You get what it is. So you read a book about life during wartime, you realize, oh, rationing. That's right. Every joke on this, this cartoon is about rationing. So this to you, this is a this is a bush that still will be giving fruit over time, right? Yeah. So yeah. the more, and, you know, we've covered all of the books, but of course we can't have covered everything. And and over the rest of your life, you're going to be like discovering more and more and more things. And I think that's uh, that's kind of fantastic. And I'm looking forward to doing the same thing, you know, rereading these books myself and going, oh, I sort of get that pun and <laughs> similar things. Yeah, I, I hear you. So... Listen, we uh, for let's tell you what we're going to do on the next two episodes because you might be going, hey, you're at the end of the books now. You guys should be quiet. No, we're not going to do that. What we're going to do the next episode is we're going to go over the films. Yes. Uh, when we say films, what are we talking? Well, I think we're talking at least four films. All right. I don't think we can do all of them. I, I don't I'd wanna... like our listeners to know what yeah. they should watch before okay. they... Okay. okay. So uh, we're going to watch... Well, I'm going to try and watch The Lake of Sharks somehow. Okay. I'm going to... I can give you... I can. We can watch that together. Okay. All right. Uh, we're going to watch Tintin and the Blue Oranges and Tintin and the Golden Fleece. Okay. Those are the two live-action French films. All right. And then uh, the Steven Spielberg Tintin. All right. Now, have you... You've watched that once before? I've seen it two, twice. All right. Are you going to watch it again? Maybe. All right, I got that one. I can watch that one. Yeah. We're gonna, Dave and I are gonna get together. We're gonna have a movie have a night. Film festival. We're yeah. gonna have a little Tintin film festival, yeah. and uh, and and that's what we're gonna do. So if you want to have your own Tintin film festival, most of these that I'm talking about, like the the land of sorry, what's it called? Land Lake of, of, Lake of Sharks. Lake of Sharks. I know for sure. Lake O'Rican. Right. Uh, you know, if you can buy it, but if you can't, it is online, and I've seen that it's there and it's yeah. in English. So feel free to go. Th- and we're not giving you permission to look. But if you want to, you can. I, I bought the uh, live action films. Good, and you've bought the live action films. Yeah. So there we go. Are they in uh, dubbed in English or are they? They in are French? subtitled. Subtitled, very good. We can do that. Uh, so uh, yeah, give those a, a look. I and prefer we, subtitled films. Yeah, of course he does. Dave likes to read. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I just like hearing the actors' voices, though. Sure. Because only they can convey that emotion they're feeling Absolutely. in that moment. I would agree. And like a guy standing in a room. So that is our next episode. The episode, which is our final episode, as far as we know, unless something happens and we go, oh, we forgot about, uh, is we're going to try and throw this over to you. And if you've got any questions or things that we have not talked about yet on the show that you would like us to discuss, or maybe something that we missed, or a big mistake we made, yeah. uh, something along those lines, uh, please let us know. And we're going to cover all of that, your questions, any anything you want us to talk about in our final episode. It's just going to be a hodgepodge. Uh, a snowy's breakfast of uh, of topics. Yes. So uh, we would love to hear from you. And if you want to contact us, uh, let's start off with the most traditional way, which is email. Email. Yeah, we'll start with email. We'll sure. work our way down from there. Now, we do another podcast called Sneaky Dragon, which is why all of the things we're going to say, for the most part, have the word Sneaky Dragon in them. That's true. Uh, in fact, if you want to listen to us talk about something that's not uh, Tintin, 
That is what you it could do. It still has our mellifluous voices. That's right. We're very mellifluous. Very mellifluous. That's it. Oh, you can also listen to Completely Beatles. <laughs> Did I Beatles. say mellifluous? It's, yeah, Completely Beatles is our other podcast about the Beatles. Basically, same deal we're doing here. But anyway, yeah. here is our email. Have you got a pen? No? Do you have access to something you can type on? I know you do because you're probably listening to this on something you can type on. It is sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. Sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. That's true. Now, if you want to go in the, to our website, sneakydragon.com. Hey, we got it. No one else had had that website, so it's us. Uh, I can't of, believe it. All of our episodes are there, mm-hmm. uh, and we have message boards underneath all of our uh, episodes. So please uh, ask us stuff there, respond, uh, correct us. If you're Colin Upton, give us amazing information uh, about the era and the time and the buildings and, and whatnot. Yep. By the way, we really do appreciate anyone that posts there. Uh, it's been fantastic. One of the best parts about doing this has been hearing your responses yes. and going, Getting you know emails. so much more than we do. One of our listeners sent a picture of him reading with his son, reading Tintin with his son. Oh, that's very, very sweet. Okay. So, uh, sneakydragon.com is there. If you want to go on Facebook, because it's the law, uh, we we do have a Totally Tintin page. We have a, a Sneaky Dragon page, but go away from there. Just go to Totally Tintin on, on Facebook. We're there. Yeah. And if you're so inclined to use Twitter, you'd be the first one ever to contact us that way. But you can at at sneaky underscore dragon. Has anyone ever done that? I don't know if anyone's... We do get a lot of retweets, we get a lot of retweets about retweets our episodes, we've had, and we appreciate we've had mentions, that. We've had mentions of the show. Yeah, but the other so, ways are more traditional for yeah. contacting yeah. us. That's so, true uh, and, uh, and that's, I think, about it for this episode, unless there's something thank else you, you want to say. Thank you for uh, joining us for the Mercury Players, everyone. <laughs> that's right. This kind of Orson Welles-level radio acting. I don't think you've probably heard that before. Nope. Unless you're a connoisseur like me of old, old-time radio, yeah. you have not experienced... This level of uh, radio. And I know Man, I'm also impressed by radio actors now. Oh, yeah. Those guys really by the way, worked it. Those of you that sometimes like to listen to episodes twice, and we have heard that you like to do that, uh, you will probably realize that our voice, character voices change as we go throughout, <laughs> as we forget what a character was earlier. So, listen, all I'm going to ask That's you is... That's why you have a director when you do something. Right. I'm going to hand you a big pair of scissors, listener. Here we go. And now I'm going to hold up this piece of slack. And I'm going to ask <laughs> you right now, please cut it for us because we need you to do that we have tried our best and by the way if we violated copyright by reading this on on our show remember it was for review purposes. it was for review purposes only yeah, yeah. and uh we ain't got no money so that's don't, true don't blood meet stone there you are so anyway everybody thank you so much for listening i've been ian boothby i've been david Dedrick. and we will uh talk to you next uh next time uh for all of at the tintin films tintin at the movies tintin at the movies Thank <laughs> you.